on the National Mall. Made possible by the AARP credit card from Chase. Mealpackchallenge.org. Well, that's it. That's all for me. I'm Jeffrey James. Thanks for spending time with us this Sunday. We know that time is a non-renewable resource. We can't save it. We can only spend it wisely. So please continue to spend time wisely with WAMU 88.5 this evening because the big broadcast is up next. This is WAMU 88.5 Washington and WRAU 88.3 Ocean City. And it's 7 o'clock. Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz. This coming Tuesday is National Radio Day. And, well, radio doesn't get any better than Orson Welles as Captain Bly, Joseph Cotton as Fletcher Christian, and the rest of the Mercury players in Mutiny on the Bounty. We've got it tonight, and it includes Mr. Welles' salute to one of the most important and unheralded fields of this medium, amateur ham radio. And we'll hear Oscar and Emmy winner Claire Trevor in a thriller centering on ham radio from the series Guest Star. Plus, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and a Lights Out episode from Arch Obler that features two terrified radio production assistants. Fred Allen weighs in, recalling the very first radio broadcast over Pittsburgh station KDKA. It was an election night newscast in 1920, which happened to be the year of the first presidential election in which women could vote. That was thanks to the 19th Amendment, ratified 99 years ago today. So we're offering the American Legion's tribute to the women's suffrage crusader Susan B. Anthony on the series Inheritance. There's an embarrassment of radio riches tonight, so get your imagination ready by relaxing, putting aside the cares of the week just past, postponing any worries about next week, and listening to an adventure featuring the actor and fine art expert Vincent Price, along with a certain celebrity insurance investigator. It's a story called The Price of Fame Matter, and it comes from February 2nd, 1958, CBS, AFRTS, And yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Johnny, this is Vincent Price. I'm calling from Hollywood. Oh, sure. My name's Shirley Temple. Now, who is it and what... Really, Vincent Price? Do I sound like Mickey Rooney? Well, no. But now, tell me, Mr. Price. Now, look, the name is Vincent. Okay, Vincent. What can I do for you? Johnny, I have a little problem in connection with one of my paintings insured for $100,000. $100,000? You call that a little problem? This painting has suddenly disappeared. Oh, I see. What's the insurance company? Four State Mutual. Oh, well, they have a small branch office right there in Los Angeles. Yeah, I know. But Bert Parker, the man who sold me the policy and should take care of this matter, well, every time I've called him, he's been out. And I learned just this morning that nobody knows where he is. Okay, Vincent, I'll grab the first plane. Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, 
Johnny Dollar. And now, act one of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Four State Mutual Insurance Company Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the price of fame matter. Expense account item one, 178.50, plane fare and incidentals, Hartford to Los Angeles. By the time the big silver constellation made its landing at the International Airport, it finally dawned on me that I hadn't arranged with Vincent Price about where and how and what time I'd meet him. But as I picked up my luggage, I discovered a hungry-looking crowd of autograph hounds running about the tall, gracious man I was looking at. Oh, sure, sure, I'm glad to. Look, but just one at a time, would you please? I can't very well. All right, there, there you are. Now I have to oh, meet a friend. Gee, just one more, please. Huh, Mr. Price? All right, if you insist. Here. Best wishes from T. Willie Rocking Horse. Huh? <laughs> How are you, Johnny? <laughs> oh, great, but I Johnny? didn't expect... Johnny who? You mean to say you folks don't recognize Johnny Dollar? Oh, no, wait a minute. boy, Johnny. Give them all. Uh, I'll wait for you in my car. It's right over here at the curb. Yeah, but look, will you? Hey, hey here, Mr. Dollar. No, 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 you don't. I know, buddy. By the time I got away from that mob, I felt as though I'd been run through a ringer. But we finally took off in Vincent's car and drove to his beautiful home up in one of the canyons west of Beverly Hills. Nestled among the trees with spacious lawns and well-kept gardens, it's furnished in the most excellent taste. I know expert, but to say that I was impressed by the extraordinary works of art in that home would be the understatement of the week. Engravings, prints, fine sculptures, but most of all, paintings. And even to my unpracticed eye, all of them were, well, magnificent. Here's a little thing I picked up in London, Johnny. It's called The Old Man in Red by Goya. Wow. Hey, I thought original oils by him were found only in the big museum. Well, I've been pretty lucky in getting hold of some of these. Yeah, you've known what you were doing, too. Mm. You like this one? It's called Fright. It was painted by uh, Kenneth McManus. Ah, uh-huh. beautiful. Beautiful. Like all the rest of them. Thanks. How about this one here at the end? Uh, Night Wind by... Uh... I'm sorry, Vincent, I can't make out that name. You don't have this one lighted like the rest. No, that's to maintain its somber mood, Johnny. Oh. And that's what made it possible for the substitution of this copy to go undetected. That's a copy? Yeah, and that's my problem. The $100,000 night win by Jean-Baptiste has been stolen. This was left in its place. Oh, I see. It's not a bad copy, probably worth a couple of hundred dollars, but it's hardly a genuine Baptiste. Well, when did you discover this uh, substitution, Vincent? When I returned from a lecture tour early last week. Oh, that's right. You've been traveling all over the country lecturing on art. Well, let's you? call it talking about art. Hmm? Tell me, have you notified the police about this? I suppose I should have. Well, I felt that was Bert Parker's job. And you haven't been able to reach him over at Four State Mutual. Well, I told you on the phone, he hasn't been in his office for some time. Vincent, have you any theories about who might have done this? Yes, I, I'm afraid I have. Well, why do you say it that way? Uh, very few people knew I'd gotten hold of this Baptiste. Only some close friends and a couple of art experts. So? And the place was not broken into during the time I was away. Of that, I'm sure. 
Well, go on. Well, the family and servants kept very close track of anyone who entered the house while I was gone. You have a list? Yes, I, I do have a list. Here. Good. Alfred R. Hawkinson. That's an electrician who came to do some wiring. He wouldn't know a Rembrandt from a Mickey Mouse. Anna M. Schumann. The music teacher. Loves music, hates paintings. Well, what about delivery boys, people like that? Oh, they never get beyond the back door. Go on, read on. Hmm? That next one is Ben, the gardener. You can forget about it. And Bert L... Huh? Yeah, Bert Parker. He was here twice. What for? Well, ostensibly to check on some of the paintings he'd insured. The first time, on the 11th, Mrs. Price was with him while he poked around. On the 15th, she had to leave to keep an appointment. And just when he left the house, nobody seems to know. Oh, brother. Are you thinking the same thing I am? Now, look, Johnny. I haven't known Bert very long, and... Well, he seemed like such a harmless little old fuddy-duddy, as for his knowledge of art. Yeah, I wondered about that. Well, he was perfectly satisfied to take my evaluation on the two or three things he'd insured. So, well, Johnny, I, I may be all wrong. Vincent, a thing like this may only happen once in a thousand years. In any event, the company will certainly make good your loss. Well, with a work of art, it isn't really the money that counts. And, Johnny, listen. Look... I may have jumped to a completely unjustified conclusion about Bert Parker. Oh, yeah? Sure. Well, let's go down to his office and see. And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and the price of fame matters. A priceless original oil painting, stolen from the home of Vincent Price, famous radio and picture star. One of the few people who'd had the opportunity was the man who'd sold him the insurance on it, Bert Parker. Together, we went to Parker's office at Four State Mutual in downtown Los Angeles. It was on the 16th that Mr. Parker phoned in to say he wasn't feeling very good and wouldn't be in for a day or two. Hey, it was on the 15th that he was at your house, Vincent. Yes, that's over two weeks ago. And you haven't heard from him since, Miss Pritt? No, Mr. Darling. We've tried calling his apartment, but... Since there hasn't been anything really pressing here at the office. What's we the address of his apartment, please? Well, it's out in Westwood, 1308 Pandora Avenue. Look, Vincent, I'm going out there. I'll call you if I find You're going to need transportation, aren't you, Johnny? By the highest price chauffeur in the country? Sure, why not? Oh, uh, b uh, b before you go, Mr. Price, I wonder if... <laughs> if I could... Have your autograph. Well, why didn't you get Johnny Dollars, Miss Fred? He huh? loves to give them. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, no. Ah. No, you don't, Vincent. It took a little persuading, but the landlord at Bert's apartment finally let us into his four-room suite. It was empty, except for a few old clothes, and it was obvious that he'd packed and left in a hurry. I rummaged around in the closets, tables, bureau, a clue as to where he might have gone, and came up with nothing. You give up, Johnny? Yeah, Vincent, I'm afraid so. I poked around that desk some more after you'd finished with it and found this wedged in behind a drawer. Oh? Travel folder. Paris. Yeah, it looks real fresh, too. Minor travel agency, Beverly Hills. Well, what do you think? Uh, pretty much of a long shot, Vincent. But they do pay off sometimes, don't they? A trip for myself, yes, sir. First class all the way. What was the departure date, Mr. Miner? 16th. First class, straight to Paris. Oh, brother. Paris is a pretty big place. Did you make any arrangements for him for after he got there? Only for when he arrived. Reservation at the Louvois. It 
What? The hotel, Lou Boys. The Louvois, perhaps. That's what I said. Oh. First class, too. Said he wanted something not too far from the Montmartre. Uh, Montmartre, if you don't mind. That's what I said. Yes. Now, can I fix you gentlemen up with some plane reservations, too? Well, suppose you get me the same flight he took, and I'll stop at the same hotel when I get there. Hey, wait a minute, Johnny. You're not going to leave me out of this. Well, look, I'm still playing a long shot, Vincent, a very long one. Well, what's the difference? Also, I don't know if my expense account will get by the home office. Expense account? Forget it. I'm having a ball. Mr. Miner, start making those reservations. Expense account item two, $984 for the plane to Paris. Well, it turned out to be the most interesting flight I've ever made because of the company of Vincent Price. An amazing conversationalist. He could talk about anything, including art. And he has a tremendous sense of humor. So, as he put it, we had a ball from the time we took off in L.A. till the time we sat down at Le Bourget. Item 3520 American taxi into the Hotel Louvois, where the manager was, uh, well, somewhat helpful. Oh, may we, may we. The Monsieur Park uh, leave us but only two days ago, after some uh, slight misunderstanding about uh, l'addition, the, the deal. Eh? Yeah, you mean he was running out of money? Uh, monsieur, I did not say that. That's what you meant, isn't it? You don't worry he spent his time around here? Mm, but of course, his business, he says. Took him constantly to uh, Montmartre. Where in Montmartre? <laughs> Who is to know? <laughs> uh, that's like saying somewhere in Brooklyn. Ah, Brooklyn. Uh, perhaps you know my cousin. Johnny, eh? he mm-hmm. Johnny, I uh, just got an idea. Shoot. Uh, works of art, even very good ones, are sometimes sold in rather, well, rather unorthodox ways. They they go through some rather strange hands. They're not always sold over the counter, so to speak, by reputable dealers. You know what I mean? Yeah, but how to contact the kind of people who might... You got any ideas? Uh, why don't you just go on up to our suite and sit tight for a while, hmm? I'll see what I can dig up. You are keeping something from me, Vincent. Mm-hmm. But, Johnny, there are some things even Funk keeps from Wagner. I'll see you later. And now, Act Three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Price of Fame Matters. All of gay, romantic Paris just outside the door and time on my hand. So what did I do? Took Vincent Price's advice, went back to my room at the Hotel of Bois and waited. Two, three, four hours. Finally, shortly after 8 p.m., Vincent came in bearing a couple of packages. Uh, sorry to have made you wait, Johnny, but, uh, I think I'm on the trail of something. Looks to me like you've been on a shopping spree. Props, Johnny, for you. Have you found out where Bert Parker is? No, but I think you will. <laughs> Here, try this on. Huh? What's this all about? A ten-gallon hat. Yeah, I had to guess that you were size. Where in, where in Paris did you find this? Try it on. Oh, what are you... Holy... What am I supposed to be, a refugee from Texas? Exactly. You made it in oil wells. Your name is Matthew. Huh? You're over here to see the sights, all the wild nightlife you've heard about, the Folie Berger, Rue Blondel, Plastigan. Here, try on this shirt. Oh, brother. Look, I don't know what this is all about, but hadn't we better get something to eat? Try it on. If you don't take me to one of the world-famous restaurants in this town... Maybe tomorrow. Huh? Yeah, that's good. That shirt's gonna be all right. What do you mean, tomorrow? Here, now, stick this genuine simulated imitation diamond-type stick pin in the front. Uh, wait a minute, I'll do it for you. Yeah, well, what the same... There you are, and with this big hunk of glass on your finger... There, now, look at you. 
Oh, you look. I'm hungry. Well, maybe you'll even get food where you're going. Now, where do you think I'm going in this rig? To a little joint on the Rue Blondel called the Bal Macabre. Now, what am I supposed to do there if I go there? Sit around. Look prosperous. And see what happens. Oh, Vincent. Remember, you made it in oil. Millions. Yeah, but Vincent... Also, you... you're interested in art, and your name is Matthew. Look, will you? On your way, Johnny. The taxi that's waiting for you out front knows exactly where to take you. The Palma Cabra was really a joint. It was dirty, and the people packed like sardines in it were dirty, too. Characters who made a business of being characters. And everybody screamed at everybody else. Except, that is, for the wormy little man who sidled up to the postage stamp-sized table on which my glass and a bottle of wine were balanced. Oh, down. You, you are Mr. Matthews, are you not? That's right. From Texas? No. Oh, uh, yes, sir, partner. The great and glorious state of Texas. Sit down and pour yourself a glass of this here red ink. Who are you? They call me La Chagrisse. What's that mean? Well, uh, what you call the gray cat. <laughs> hey, that's cuter than the name of my old friend Coyote Bill. Well, do you enjoy the Paris nightlife? Uh, you know something? I'm getting fed up with it. Yeah, I think I'll just buy me a couple of nice pictures and go on back home. What uh, kind of pictures, monsieur? Well, good ones. Oil pictures. Like that Mona Lizzie I've seen at the Louvre. You know, good ones, I mean. Or like a Jean-Baptiste, perhaps? You mean you know where a man could get a hold of a genuine one of them? Well, for a price, of course. Well, listen, I got money and I'll spend it. Why well, I offered them $500,000 for that Mona Lizzie, but they turned me down. But if I could get a hold of a genuine Baptiste... Well, partner, you just name the price. Oh, well, I make no promises, mon ami. But I, I do have a friend... And for a slight consideration... Name your price and take me to it. I will be waiting for you at the corner with the taxi. And that is what you call okay? Okay. I shall be waiting. I'll be there, partner. You bet I will. And I'd certainly like to know how Vincent set this up. The taxi dropped us off at one of the most disreputable-looking apartments in the whole of Paris. My friend, who called himself the Great Cat, looked carefully around before entering the front door. Then we climbed four flights of a dark, musty stairway. Now, remember, my friend, you are not to pay the price he asked at first. If you like, I will make the arrangements for you. Now, that would be right friendly of you, partner. But how would you come out on this? Well, all I ask, monsieur, is 10% of what you pay. And maybe a little extra from him for bringing me up here? Oh, monsieur. Oh, now, don't give me that part. Now, I've been around. I'm wise to how you fellas operate. But if I can get a hold of a real genuine Baptiste... You will see. Yes? Who is it? I have brought a friend, Mr. Matthews from Texas. Yes? He would like to buy the night wind by Baptiste. That is, if it's genuine. Genuine? Of course it's genuine. There, on the table. Can't you see for yourself that it's the only... Oh, no. Well, well. Bert Parker. Johnny Dollar. That's right. 
insurance investigator. Investigate you? Oh, I will. I just remember somebody is waiting for me. That's right, I am. Mr. Price. Oh, no. Well, but, but don't be surprised, but I must go. Without he, your fee for he, taking care of Mr. Dollar? Listen. Listen, both of you, please. I'll give you back the painting. I'll do anything you ask. Oh, drop that. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, Vincent, there it is. Yep. And it looks like the company has saved a cool $100,000. I, um, I have a confession to make about that, Johnny. Yeah, like how you happened to know the way to the painting through that squirmy little fellow who brought me here? Oh, well, that's how I got hold of the Baptiste in the first place. <laughs> it's a lovely thing, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. And, Johnny, it is worth 100000 Oh, I'm sure. But the truth of the matter is, I paid only $300 for it. You paid... Oh, no. It's a fact. <laughs> well, you've got it back, thanks to your own efforts. <laughs> thanks to your being the front man. If I'd tried to get it back myself, these people would have run like scared rats. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, just tell me one thing, would you? Why aren't you an insurance investigator? Well, you know, it's every man to his own... <laughs> well, after all, why aren't you an actor? Uh... Yeah, let's get out of here. Disposition of Bert Parker? Well, that's entirely up to the company. Benson, now that he has the painting back, doesn't care one way or the other. However, from the company's standpoint, well, it's not the kind of blank eye that's good for you. Expense account total, including incidentals and transportation back to the States, $2,341. Remarks? Well, to Vincent Price, my eternal thanks. Not only for the help on this case, but most of all because it's given me a chance to really know him. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here's our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week... The heart of sunny southern Jersey, and a case that took a very sudden, very strange twist. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone, who also wrote today's story. Heard in our cast were Virginia Gregg, Junius Matthews, Tony Barrett, Horace Lewis, Howard McNear, and of course, our special guest, Vincent Price. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Dan Coverley speaking. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.
Groundhog Day in 1958, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and the Price of Fame matter, the famous price in question being Vincent Price, one of the two greatest American acting voices of the 20th century. We'll hear from the other one, Mr. Price's Mercury Theater colleague and director, Orson Welles, in Mutiny on the Bounty. It's coming up later tonight, here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We celebrate radio every week on this show, but tonight we're celebrating National Radio Day, coming up this Tuesday, and we're doing it with some radio shows about radio. What was widely, and not completely correctly, considered to be the first commercial radio broadcast took place on election night, November 2nd, 1920, over a Pittsburgh station with an amateur license, 8ZZ, also known as KDKA. So, to celebrate National Radio Week in 1945, the Fred Allen Show opened with a nod to that pioneer broadcast and continued with references to the Pierce Arrow Automobile, Senator Joseph Ball, the Women's Army Corps, or WAX, the actor Joseph Cotton, whom we'll hear later tonight, the magazine's Life and Esquire, the singers Barry Wood and Lucy Monroe, her specialty was the national anthem, the battleship Missouri, nicknamed Big Mo, the playwright and songwriter Noel Coward, and the disrespected movie actor Sonny Tufts. The guest star is the wide-mouthed Martha Ray, and of course, you'll hear jokes about Mr. Allen's cheapskate rival, Jack Benny. From November 4th, 1945, and NBC, it's The Fred Allen Show. It isn't Mildred's Pierce, kiddies. <laughs> the makers of Tenderleaf Tea and Blue Bonnet Margarine present the Fred Allen Show with Fred's guest Martha Ray, Portland Hopper, Minerva Pius as Mrs. Nussbaum, the Tenderleaf Workshop Players, the DeMarco Sisters, and Al Goodman and his orchestra. And if you're wondering who I am, my name is Kenny Delmont. Ladies and gentlemen, this is National Radio Week. To observe the occasion auspiciously, we wanted to bring you a radio big shot. But all we could get was a blank. And here he is, Brad Allen. Thank you, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, Kenny, this week radio celebrates its 25th year of broadcasting. Think of that, 25 years and still in its infancy. <laughs> you know, the first radio program I heard was from Pittsburgh station KDKA, way back in 1920. Uh, how, how was the first broadcast, Fred? Oh, it was quite exciting, Kenny. The announcer came on and said, this is Pittsburgh. The next thing I knew... Cinder started flying out of my crystal set. Smoke came pouring out of the earphones. The coil turned into a hot coal. The wires melted down and spelled out John L. Lewis on the floor. <laughs> So in 1920, radio must have been a lot different, too. Oh, all of the programs were new then, Kenny. Mr. District Attorney was still going to law school back in those days. The National Bond Dance was just one rube doing a hoedown in a silo. Bulldog Drummond was just part of a litter back in 1920. 
And radio had yet to hear those two famous words. Mr. Allen. Well, pardon. Say, you uh, you got a lot of applause tonight. My aunt with the big hands is here. Your aunt with the big hands, huh? Well, tell me. <laughs> tell me, Portland, are you... We probably use it the way things start off. Tell me, Portland, are you, are you celebrating National Radio Week? No. Mama and I are celebrating the end of shoe rationing. Oh, good, good. Mama says now that song will be back on the hip parade again. What song? Shoe, shoe, baby. <laughs> You should spray that joke with DDT, Portland. <laughs> it's lying there, but it isn't quite dead yet. <laughs> Say, how can you buy shoes today? Aren't the stores crowded? Oh, it's awful. My salesman had four women's feet in his hands at once. Say, that beats a full house, four feet. <laughs> See, he must have been terribly mixed up. Oh, he was. When I left the shoe store, yes. on one foot, I was wearing a wedgie. And on your other foot? I had a sneaker. A wedgie and a sneaker, huh? <laughs> With one leg longer than the other, how did you ever get home? I walked along Fifth Avenue with one foot in the gutter. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I hope you didn't step on anybody we know. Speaking of stepping, we'd better start stepping down to Allen's Alley, Portland. What is your question tonight? Well, I was going to use that one we heard earlier in the evening about the man who was sitting in Mildred's Piers, but I changed my mind. You know, this week, the $11 billion victory loan drive started throughout the country, and since the government is asking all of us to buy more bonds, Portland, our question is, are you doing your part in the victory loan drive? Shall we go? As one little doggie said to the other little doggie, let's get along. Gosh, it's good to be back in Allen's Alley again, isn't it, Portland? I wonder if the senator is in. Somebody, I say, somebody now. Now look, Senator. Craghorn's the name. Senator Craghorn, that I, is. I know. I what... represent the South. I'm from Dixie. That's down south. Well, you keep telling me yeah, the same. Let me talk, son. Well, all I'm trying. Let me get a word in. A word, you understand? That's all I know. Yeah, I know. You keep running off at the mouth, son. I haven't even. Yadda 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 Look, Senator, what is Washington doing about the victory loan drive? Well, I say, Congress is all excited. Senator Ball is bouncing. Fine. <laughs> I said Ball is bouncing. That's a joke, son. Well, I suspect it. You ain't very humorous, son. Well, I do the best I can. They keep getting by you. Well, I do the best I can to stop them, Senator. But they're so sticky, I don't like to touch them. Tell me, Senator... Are you? Now, Makes a lot of pauses, oh, oh, <laughs> We have uh, any pauses left over? We could use the short ones, you know, for station identification. Tell me, Senator, are you behind this victory loan? I overdone it, son. I can't go back home. You can't go south. I told my constituents to buy bonds, buy victory bonds. I said. I see. Our army has won the war. I said. Good. Our army is coming home victorious. I said. Well, why can't you go back down south, Senator? They, I say, they thought I meant the Confederate army. Oh. So long. So long. That is. So long. I... Hey, a piece of corn pone fell out of the senator's pocket here. Oh, 
Oh, well, I'll give it to him next Sunday. Well, let's move along to Titus Moody's door. Howdy, bud. Say, uh... <laughs> Mr. Moody, you look a little tired tonight. Yeah, my sales robot catalog come yesterday. I was up all night reading it. You couldn't, uh, couldn't put it down, eh? Couldn't wait to see how the story come out. Gosh, well, uh, uh, Mr. Moody, I know you're doing your part in the victory loan drive. Yeah, I bought $500 worth of bonds. You put them in the bank? I buried them in my backyard. You hid your money in the ground? Why? Well, the fellow he told me, he says, you can't take it with you. And you? I thought I'd try it. <laughs> well, burying your money sounds like a good idea. Not so good, bub. What happened? Gophers. <laughs> gophers, eh? They dug down where I had my money buried. You mean the gophers ate up all of your bonds? Couldn't tell my $500 from a hole in the ground. Hold on, Bob. Well, Mr. Moody's going to have a hard time trying to spend those occupation gophers. Well, I'll try this next house. No? Well, Mrs. Nussbaum, I'm sure you're doing your bit in the victory loan drive. I'm auctioning off my furniture. Really? My goal is $100 bonds. What uh, what furniture did you put up? First, my coffee table. Uh-huh. For $12, it's going, going, gone. $12 for a coffee table, huh? Oh, it's a genuine Sippendale. Oh, Sippendale. <laughs> Fine. Fine. Next, for $50, is going my pickle pine lobster. Pickle pine lobster. <laughs> Another valuable piece? A Duncan Feinstein. Duncan <laughs> I see. Then it's going job lot. Peapot, high boys, low boys, assorted bracket uh, Most of your things were gone, huh? Like old Mother Hubbard, my cupboard is there. She'll pardon the expression. Yes. <laughs> but you, uh, you made your $100 goal? I am three dollars well, how did you raise the last three dollars? In the kitchen, I'm finding two chairs. Two chairs. My rocking chair and my husband Pierre's modest chair. And you, uh... I'm selling Pierre's chair. Eureka, I'm making mine gold. Well, if you sold your husband's chair, what is he sitting on now? But he's always sitting on, silly Billy. <laughs> Here we are at the last house in the alley. I'll see if anyone's home here. Oh, oh it's, it's you, the, the pest again. again. Ah, McGee and McGee. I'll bet you boys have written some new songs this week. You bet. Have you heard? It's watermelon time in Waterbury, baby, so I can't elope with you. Now, wait a minute. Now, look. I just stopped by to say I'm checking to see if everybody is behind the victory loan drive. Great. We just wrote a new Victory Bond song. Victory Bond song? How does it go? It's him. Katie ain't dancing, romancing, or stuff. She's just buying bonds. The war may be won, but the job isn't done. Katie's buying bonds. Katie's saving his dough for that small bungalow that he'll share with his strawberry blonde. Cause she is a whack and until she gets back tasting buying bonds. 
And now that McGee and McGee have torn their tune apart, we bring you five little girls who will put one together for you. The DeMarco sisters, accompanied by Maestro Al Goodman and his atomic orchestra, now sing Bell Bottom Trousers. with a word to the wives. You can trust Her Majesty, the American housewife, to be practical every time. She wants finer tea in its most convenient form. So she buys Tenderleaf brand tea balls. They outsell all other kinds in America because they're better in every way. Easy to handle, more convenient, more gracious. Above all, they make finer tea. Because the tea leaves inside the individual packets is famous for flavor Tenderleaf brand tea. Always supremely delicious. And the packets are made of tasteless filter paper. A vast improvement that filters your tea as it's being made. It comes out clear and sparkling, unmarred by speck. There's nothing but tea goodness in your cup. And tea goodness means quick comfort when you need it most. When you want the quick comfort of a bracing cup of delicious tender leaf tea, just drop a tender leaf tea ball in your cup, add boiling water, and it's ready. So for every good reason, ask your grocer for tender leaf brand tea ball. So Al Goodman has just presented a Reader's Digest version of that popular song, If I Loved You. And now, say, Portland, will you hand me my pitch pipe over there on the floor, please? Uh-huh. Is this it? Yes, thank you. Any bones today? Any bones today? Uh, what are you doing, Mr. Allen? What does it sound as though I'm doing? Mm. Any bones today? Yeah. <laughs> well, you can laugh. Let me tell you, the Treasury Department, Treasury Department, all the dealings I've had with them and can't pronounce the name. <laughs> Heard me singing with Frank Sinatra last week. The Treasury Department. All uh-huh. right. You know Barry Wood did all of the singing in the last Bond Drive. Well, the Treasury Department wants me to sing for the victory loan. Why, I may be another Lucy Monroe before I'm through. <laughs> 
in pennies is still $11 billion, Portland. I'm singing on the Staten Island Ferry tomorrow at 11 o'clock. If the wind is right, they'll hear me all over Jersey. They think they have flats in Jersey. Wait till they hear me in the morning. Who is our guest tonight? Guest? Guest? Oh, I knew I had forgotten something, Portland. You know, I've been so busy. Yesterday, I had to go down to the song publishers to get a copy of any bonds today. Well, I got there early and nobody was around. I thought I'd wait in one of the rehearsal rooms. So I opened the door, and there was a quiet-looking young girl sitting there studying some lyrics. I passed by a window, I think was the name of the song. And as I come in, as I came in, she looked up and said softly, I am Fay, oh boy, oh boy, Fay, I am Fay. Say, I, uh, I didn't mean to barge in on you, Martha. I'm sorry. Oh, forget it. Slap the caucus down over here. Uh, at my age, Martha, one does not slap the cockers. One lowers it gently. Well, lower it gently, Fred. The creaking won't bother me. You sure? <laughs> you, sure? <laughs> you come across an occasional one as we go along. Martha, Martha, you seem depressed. You look as though you had lost a friend. Fred, I just lost a million friends. What happened? The fleet left town. Now, don't tell me your boyfriend was the Romeo of the Big Mo. Oh, he was the cutest little sailor, Fred. A little sailor? Uh, he was so small, his dog tag was a Pekingese. Would you like to run over that again? Now, there's some <laughs> it may be with us, I'm not sure. So small, he's a, a sort of a sample sailor. Was he romantic in a miniature way? Romantic? When I smiled? Yes. He said it was like a landing barge opening up. <laughs> Well, as long as you've missed your sailor friend, Martha, how about going out with me? Are you kidding? Well, you know the old Navy saying, any old port in a storm. It ain't that stormy, Fred. <laughs> Martha, there are people, believe it or not, who think that I am not unpretty. Fred, at carnivals, I have thrown baseballs at better-looking faces. <laughs> Martha, for your information, I have my own hair, I have my own teeth. No other radio comedian can make that statement. So what do you say, uh, what do you say, Martha? Let's go jitterbugging. You a jitterbug, Fred? Are you too old to jit? Uh, a man is never too old to jit, Martha. I read about a jitterbug who was 97 years of age. The day he was buried, a voice was heard coming from within his coffin. What did the voice say? Dig me, brother, dig me. <laughs> well, Martha, I have to run along. I've got to learn my song. But I have to rehearse my song, too. Really? I'm opening at the carnival room in a couple of weeks. Say, as long as you're going to be in town, how about coming on my program some Sunday? Oh, I'm through with comedy, Fred. I'm going in for drama. You, a dramatic actress? Fred, while I was playing overseas for the USO, I learned that soldiers aren't looking for comedy in a woman. Well, I know that, Martha. And what they're looking for, you are not going to find a Noel Coward, either. <laughs> Won't Hollywood give you a chance to do it? <laughs> we could have used some of that on two of those other jokes. We... <laughs> so Won't Hollywood uh, give you a chance to do a dramatic picture? Hollywood? Ten years in Hollywood, and what have I got to show for it? 
200 sweaters and Sonny Tuff's autograph. Sonny Tuff's gad, they've taught him to write. <laughs> Paramount did it again. Oh, if I just had a chance to show my dramatic ability. See, I just remembered, Martha. It so happens that I have a play. A drama? Gosh, Fred. Now, if you have a little time. Uh, just a minute, Fred. The band is waiting to rehearse my number. Uh-huh. I'll be right back. Okay, boys. It's a dramatic. It's a dramatic with some tender leaf tea in there. Which... It's a sequel to that. It's a sequel. Let's read between the lines. I think it's. Was... I think it's a, it's a sequel to that new picture, Love Letters, Martha. Love Letters, that big hit Jennifer Jones and Joseph Cotton are starting. Yes, Love Letters, but my play is called Mash Note. <laughs> you are a girl like Jennifer Jones. You have lost your memory. And the way I play Joseph Cotton, you'll think a bold weevil has just gotten through it. Let's go, Fred. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the premiere performance of America's newest dramatic star, Miss Martha Ray in Mashnode. I am Bennington. That is my name. I cannot remember my name. I cannot remember anything. The reason I cannot remember anything is because I have lost my memory. I remember only one word out of my forgotten past. One word keeps echoing through my mind. Always that one word. Megatroid, Megatroid. Megatroid, Megatroid. Megatroid, Megatroid. 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 That word was the only thing to my past. Life was brightened. I met him. Yes, Bennington met me. I am Lord Neville Buff Puffington, keeper of the Privy Seal, Alto Pfeiffer in His Majesty's Warm Stream Guard, 
at the last election given the boot with Winston Churchill. Yes, it was I who won the art of Bennington, but I shall start at the beginning. It was at the beginning it all started, obviously. It was Michaelmas Eve at Lady Cavendish's Fish and Chip Fry. Music was played. It was the social event of the season. A group of us young dandies had gathered. I was standing by the obstacle. I was about to give it a bit of a tweak when I heard a chap say... I say, here comes Lady Cavendish, but you went out with her niece. Oh, gentlemen. How'd you do? You do. You do. You do. You do. You do. This is my niece, Bennington. You do. 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 You I say, Bennington. Yes, my lord? We buff Puffingtons never beat about the bush, you know. Yes, my lord? If we have something to say, we jolly well out with it. Tippity-poo and all that sort of rot, you know. Yes, my lord? Bennington. Will you marry me? Yes, my lord? Congratulations, old girl. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. I was to be Lady Buff Puffington. He didn't know my mind was a blank. Only one word tied me to my forgotten past. Always the same word. Megatroid, Megatroid. Megatroid, Megatroid. Megatroid, Megatroid. Megatroid. And so we were married. It wasn't long before I sensed that something was wrong with Bennington. She was incessantly forgetting. Forever she seemed to be saying... I can't remember. When I would say, Bennington, I'm off for a bit of croquet. Where are my wickets? I can't remember. Bennington, I'm going frogging tonight. Where is my frog net with the short handle? I can't remember. Finally, it dawned on me. My wife had lost her memory. I sent for England's greatest psychiatrist, Sir Proctor Prendable Bob. The psychiatrist said, Your wife has suffered a great shock, really. It caused her to lose her memory. Shock, you say? She must have witnessed some terrible scene. Terrible scene. Someone in agony. Agony. Someone tortured. There is only one clue. One clue, you mean? The name Murgatroyd. Anything else, doctor? Yes, that would be two pounds. <laughs> Murgatroyd, the only clue. I called on the police. To the four corners of the earth, they cabled that name. Murgatroyd, 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 Murgatroyd. Murgatroyd. Then success. Scotland Yard found the solution. Bit by bit, they pieced together my wife's tragic past. At last I knew. I summoned her. Bennington, I say, Bennington. Who are you? I am your mate, Lord Buff Puffington. I can't remember. Your memory will soon come back, old girl. Listen closely. You recall Murgatroyd? Murgatroyd? Murgatroyd. <laughs> An accountant in Hollywood, California, in the colonies when you were there. My memory. It's coming back. 
Murgatroyd. I worked for him. Right. Then one day in March, one of Murgatroyd's clients came into his accountant's office, remember? Stop, stop. Don't bring that horrible picture to my mind again. No, no, no. There in Murgatroyd's office, you saw the sight that drove you out of your mind. No, no, no. You witnessed a man going through the agonies worse than death. A scene of self-torture and suffering no other mortal could possibly witness without breaking. No, no, no. Yes, Bennington. You saw Jack Benny paying his income tax. A suggestion about something good to eat makes us all take notice. So here's one for the book. Remember the letters F and E for flavor, nutrition, economy. Blue Bonnet Margarine gives all three flavor, nutrition, economy. Yes, when you buy Blue Bonnet Margarine, ladies, you get three important things. You get flavor, delicious flavor. The fussiest eater in your family will go for Blue Bonnet. It's so fresh, delicate tasting, country sweet. You get nutrition, proved nutrition. Delicious Blue Bonnet is packed with food energy, rich in vitamin A, too. And Blue Bonnet means economy. This fresh, tempting spread saves you real money. Why, it costs so little, you can spread it on twice as thick. And remember, Blue Bonnet margarine is a product of the makers of Fleischmann's yeast. Back of every pound stands the Fleischmann reputation for top-quality food. You can buy Blue Bonnet with confidence and eat it with real delight. So ask your grocer for Blue Bonnet tomorrow. It's the margarine that gives you flavor, nutrition, economy. All three. Thank you, Kenny. Before we stack up the tender leaf tea bags and put away the blue bonnet margarine for the evening, I want to thank Martha Ray for joining us tonight. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, next Sunday night, the Fred Allen Show brings you comedy. <laughs> Drama. Joe, Joe, don't take my life. Okay, I'll take your Esquire instead. And our guest will be... Monty Woolley. The Fred Allen Show, from the autumn of 1945, and from the big broadcast. Only ten years later, the most popular personalities on radio were the disc jockeys, whose musical repertoire consisted of top 40 records played over and over throughout the broadcast day. So listeners knew most of the hits by heart, and that, in turn, opened the door for Dickie Goodman a novelty record producer and performer who did parodies of newscasts interspersed with clips of hit records. Nowadays, we'd call it sampling. These comedy break-in records, as they were called, were very silly, but they were pretty popular, and there are still people doing them today. By far the biggest break-in hit 
was Mr. Goodman's collaboration with Bill Buchanan, parodying the newscaster John Cameron Swayze in 1956. Released in July of that year on the Luniverse record label, it made it to number three on the Billboard charts. It was called The Flying Saucer Part One. We interrupt this record to bring you a special bulletin. The reports of a flying saucer hovering over the city have been confirmed. The flying saucers are real. That was the Clatters recording. Too real. We switch you now to our on-the-spot reporter downtown. Come on, baby, let's go downtown. Take it away, John Cameron Cameron. Uh, this is John Cameron Cameron downtown. Uh, pardon me, madam. Would you tell our audience what would you do if the saucer were to land? Duck, duck in the hell. Thank you. Another thing, gentlemen, there. What I'm going to do is hard to tell. Uh, the gentleman with the guitar. What would you do, sir? Would you take a walk down the street? Thank you. Uh, return you now. was the Pelican's Outer Space recording Earth. I've just been handed a bulletin. The flying saucer has just landed. We switch you again downtown. Uh, here we are again. We have with us Professor Sir Cedric Fentingmold of the British Institute. And the professor is approaching a saucer to see if there's possibly any sign of life aboard. Well, I'm sure something. Are you there? I hear you now. That was Laughing Lewis's record, Knocking. This is John Cameron Cameron on the spot. And now I believe we're about to hear the words of the first spaceman ever to land on Earth. And now, here are the bowl scores. Four to three, six to two, and eight to one. The impact of seeing the first spaceman has this reporter reeling. That was the Clatters again, with their big one, Uh-oh! This is John Cameron Cameron again downtown. The spaceman has returned to his ship and is taking off. We return you now to our studios. The flying saucer has gone. There is no threat of an invasion. However, the flying saucers are still around. Radio hit from 1956, Buchanan and Goodman's The Flying Saucer, Part 1. It came your way from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey co-produces the show. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. Org. If you're one of those Gunsmoke listeners who's fascinated by the character of Miss Kitty Russell and her relationship with Marshal Matt Dillon, then you're going to love tonight's story. It's the episode called Kitty, and it comes from November 29th, 1952, CBS and Gunsmoke. Dodge City and in the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of 
Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Morning, Mr. Bobby. Huh? Oh, hello, Marshal. <laughs> Morning, Mr. Dillon. Morning, Sam. Is uh Kitty around? Oh, don't know she's up yet, but if she is, she ought to be down soon. <laughs> oh, I'll wait. Nippy this morning. Oh, feels good. It's a nice time of year, huh? Uh, I don't know. I I kinda like spring myself. Uh, Sam. You better wash that glass over. Huh? Hmm? Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, can I get you something? Beer, maybe? Uh, got any coffee? Sure. Just made a pot. Oh, I'll be fine. Her face is something wonderful. That's pretty, man. <laughs> you got a pretty voice. Oh, it is. Good enough for calling the hogs, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you just get up? A while ago. Why? Oh, it just strikes me I haven't seen you close too early like this. Uh-huh. No, no, I, I, you look fine. I, 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 mean, mean, I mean that you... You better quit while you're ahead. <laughs> yeah, I guess. It's... Where's Sam? Oh, he's bringing in coffee. Oh, Sam, cup for me, please. Sure, Miss Kitty. What's your occasion, Matt? Uh... Kitty, um, there's a party tomorrow night, a dance. It's a benefit for the new school down at the hall, you know? <laughs> and, uh, ever fellows to bring a girl, you know? <laughs> it happens at dances. Go on. Well, uh, what I'm trying to... Will you go? Uh, with me? I'd kind of like to, Matt, but no thanks. Oh. Well, I gotta work here, you know that. Besides... Well, you ought to be able to get off. Well, even if I could, ladies might not take kindly to it, Matt. Not rightly polite society. Ah, what do you care about? What? Oh, thanks anyway, Matt. Ah, that smells wonderful. Sammy, I think I'll marry you. <laughs> Me? <laughs> shucks. <laughs> Me? Oh, shucks. <laughs> Uh, listen, Kitty, about the dance, I, I've already bought the you, tickets. You're sweet, Matt, and I thank you kindly for thinking of me, but uh, you better ask someone else. Well, it, it isn't... Ki Sam, will, will you go and polish up your glasses, please? Hmm? Oh, sure, Mr. Dillon, sure. Now, look, Kitty, I'm asking you to go with me. It, 
Well, it's important to me that you go. Are you making love to me, Matt? At this hour in the morning? No, no, I, I mean it. I, I want you to go to the dance. You want to be embarrassed. You want everyone to stare at us. You know what they'll say? My, my, the marshal really should have better sense than to bring that woman here. It ain't decent. It ain't proper. <laughs> oh, kid. Well, it's true. <laughs> I'm a hostess at the Texas Trail, a, a saloon. You know what they think about me. Well, I... Will you go, Kitty? No. I'll call by for you at seven, huh? I'll drink a bottle of whiskey and clout some old biddy on the head. Then you'll be sorry. Oh, Kitty. I haven't got anything to wear, Matt. I can't wear my working clothes. You look just fine like you are, Kitty. Just fine. Just like you are. Marshal. Yeah. I shouldn't, but I guess I'll go to the dance with you. <laughs> I'll be ready at seven. How do you talk about a woman like Kitty? The color of her hair, eyes, the shape of her leg, the way she spoke, thought. Well, that's a picture you had to get by looking and hearing. Otherwise, you, you'd never know it. And I felt real good about taking Kitty to the party. The first time we'd really be out in company. And I liked the idea. Morning, Mr. Dillon. Good morning, Chester. Nice day. What is that? That, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, all over my desk, that. Ink. Yes, sir, I know. I was just cleaning it up, Mr. Dillon. Seemed like a big blue bottle fly, last of his kind this fall, I guess. Big fool blue bottle fly was a setting on your desk, Mr. Dillon. Oh, you're slopping it all over the floor, Chester. Yes, sir, I see it. That lazy fool blue bottle fly was a stomping all over your desk, Mr. Dillon, and I took a whack at him with a paper I happened to have in my hand, and I got him. Well, thanks a lot. Well, that's all right, Mr. Dillon. If there's anything in this world I hate, it's a big maggoty blue bottle yeah, fly. Yeah, 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 I know, Chester. Uh, the mail come in yet? Yes, sir. A couple of minutes ago. It's right over there. Oh, okay. I think that should do it, Mr. Dillon. All right, Chester. Anything likely in the mail, Mr. Dillon? No, no. Uh, look, Chester, uh, we better get these government circulars posted. Uh, would you do that for me? Yes, sir, I'll do that. Uh, say, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Chester? About the dance tomorrow. Now, what about it? Well, you're going, aren't you, sir? Doc's going. He's taking Ms. McNish. I I'm going. Everybody's going. You are going, aren't you, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, I'm going. Don't seem right, man. You're standing not to go to a big social like we're... You are? Yes. Well, that's fine. Just fine. Uh, Doc and, and me, we were talking, and it just didn't seem right to us that a man like you didn't have no real nice sweet girl to escort to a big social. I got one, Chester. A real nice sweet girl. I'm taking Kitty. Miss Kitty? I asked her before I came down, and she accepted. Well, that's good. Miss Kitty, uh... that's right, Chester. Uh, 
I uh, got to get a couple of letters off to Washington, Chester. You you want to go and see about posting those circulars, huh? Yes, Mr. Dillon. Ah, fine. What is it, Chester? Well, Mr. Dillon, it it ain't none of my business, and I, I did not have no right to say it. Say what? Well, sir, I... I... Yeah? I was wondering if I might borrow one of them fancy ties off you for the party. That's not your business. That's what you haven't got any right to say. Yes, sir. No, that's... Right. You're a liar, Chester. But you can borrow a tie. I thank you kindly, Mr. Dillon. You work for a long time with a man, and you share a lot of life and a lot of death. And after a while, you, you know him even better than yourself. Well, that's the way it is with Chester and with me. Now, he had something on his mind, and I figured after a while he'd get it off. Well, the morning went, and it was almost noon when Chester came back. Gonna go have some dinner, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, I think I will. How about you? Hungry as a raggle-bone possum. <laughs> Did you get the posters up? Yes, sir. Well, okay, let's go. Uh, Mr. Dillon? Yeah. I guess there's something you ought to know, sir. There's talk. Yeah. All right, Chester, come on, get it out. It's all over town. About you taking Miss Kitty to the dance tomorrow night. What do you mean, all over town? I only asked her this morning. Yes, sir, I know. Best I can figure, Sam over at the Texas Trail must have heard you and let it slip. There's been a mighty fierce mess of gum clobbering up and down all over. All right. Uh, thanks for telling me, Chester. It ain't none of my business. Yeah, I know. You said that before. Yes, sir. I surely did. Well, let's go get something to eat. It's hard to tell about people. Maybe it's hard to tell about yourself because you come under that same heading, people. And when they're mean and small, there's not an animal to touch them. Chester and I walked down the street, and it didn't take long to hear and see what was going on. Some of the drifters leaning against the wall on the corner came right out with it. Morning, Marshal. I understand there's a Galantine's got herself a new boat. What did you say? <laughs> Maybe you ought to look into it, Marshal. Folks are being downright rude. Mister, you're gonna... Come on, Chester. Ought to haul him in. Every one. Yeah. What are you gonna charge him with? Pestilence, Mr. Dillon. Just plain pestilence. Pestilence. 
I knew better what Kitty had meant about the ladies of the town when a couple came out of Olivet's dry goods store. They didn't see me until it was um, too late. I'm complaint to the dance committee. It's indecent, that's what it is, why she's common. Nothing but a common saloon woman. What's this city common do when a United States Marshal... Oh. Morning, Miss Sprinkle. Uh. When a man's born, they, they say he's blessed or cursed with a lot of things already in him. Take pride, for instance. Sometimes pride can be a curse. Well, maybe I had more in my share. And maybe it would have been a sight kinder if I'd not taken Kitty to the dance. But I did. return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, this hint for weekend driving. Whatever you do, be moderate. Be obedient to all traffic laws. Be careful. Use your head and don't take chances. Now for the second act of Gunsmoke. picked up Kitty at the Texas Trail at 7 the next evening. She was waiting by the side door, and when I saw her, she kind of moved back in the shadows, almost as though she was ashamed for me to see her. Hi. Hello, Mary. Are you all set? Well, I guess so. Uh, Man, are you sure Hey, you... Kitty, you look fine. Yeah, you look just fine. <laughs> Do you like it? Yeah. Yeah, I like it. We walked along the street down to the hall, and I, I kept looking at her like, like I say, you know, you, you, you had to know this, Kitty, to understand what I mean, and <laughs> even then you get a surprise. She was like a 17-year-old on her first date, and she was like all the women you'd ever known and loved, soft and innocent. And something else, something that's female, and you can't figure out what. Something that makes you drunk without a drink inside you. It was snowing a little and the flakes caught in her hair and melted into the black of her velvet cloak. And just before we went in, I looked at her again. And I didn't care. I I was proud she was with me. Oh, evening, Marshal Dillon. Evening, Miss Murphy. Uh, you know Miss Russell? I do. You have your tickets, Marshal Dillon? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here we are. Fine. Uh, go right in, won't you? Oh, sure. Oh, uh, excuse me, Mrs. Murphin. Is there somewhere I can put my cloak? Oh, uh, uh, yes, yes, of course. Um, the ladies' reception room is right through there. I, I didn't catch the name. Catherine Russell, ma'am. Excuse me, ma'am. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll wait for you. Thanks. You better. 
I could see them through the big open doors in the hall. They were all there. Faces flushed, smiling, happy, dancing. And all the women seemed pretty and the men handsome. And Chester was up on the platform calling the dance and Doc was fiddling. And I was waiting for my dancing partner, Miss Kitty Russell. John? Oh, that's a nice dress, Kitty. Well, I haven't worn it since a few years back in New Orleans. Hey, Marshall. Oh, Miss Kitty. Uh, Doc. Well, hiya. Oh, fine, Doc. Hello, Doc. <laughs> I say, <clears throat> say, we got a bottle of whiskey outside. You care to join us? <laughs> oh, this punch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not right now. Thank you, Doc. Oh, well, sure. See, Miss Kitty, I saw you come in. Best-looking woman in here. <laughs> Oh, there's lots of scratching going on. Oh, thank you, Doc. If you see Mrs. Magnish, don't tell her where I am, will you? Man gets kind of dry, fiddling. So long. So long, Doc. Punch, Marshal Dillon? Uh, Kitty? I guess so. Uh, Mr. Sprinkle, have you met Miss Catherine Russell? No, no, I'm afraid I haven't. You got a short memory, Mr. Sprinkle. Huh? I could have swore it was you on the Texas Trail a couple of weeks back. Drunker no hoot owl. Don't you remember I had to slap your face? Uh, I, I think... Edward? Well, I, it, Edward? Yes, dear? You let somebody else take care of the punch. I want you to come with oh, me. Oh, well, I, I, I promised. I, I'm, I'm on the committee. Even, Miss Sprinkle. I have no wish to speak to you, Marshal Dillon, or this woman you brought with you. I will not have my husband serving such people. Aren't you being a trifle bad-mannered, Miss Sprinkle? How dare you say that? Well, aren't you? I suggest that you leave, Marshal. Emmy. You're not wanted here. Not with that woman you've seen fit to bring. Come on, Matt. I want to go. No. This is a public dance, Miss Sprinkle. Right now, you're trying to make it private. If you can't behave like a lady, I'll thank you to leave this lady's presence. Well, now, see here, Marshal. You can't talk like that to my wife. Hey, Kitty! What do you say, Kitty? Hmm. Matt, please. I want to go. We're not going anywhere. We're staying. Uh, um, uh, how about some music? All, all right now, folks. It'll be a wall this time. Thanks for the punch, Mr. Sprinkle. Come on, Kitty. I warned you, Matt. Now, please, will you take me out of here before something happens? Nothing's going to happen, Kitty. 
You and me are going to dance. Have a good time. That's all. You're acting like a kid. Matt, it won't work. I've seen this kind of thing before. May I have this dance, Miss Kitty? Please, Matt. You're being pig-headed and you know it. Let's get out. You're refusing me, Miss Kitty? Oh, Matt. We danced. But it wasn't what I hoped it would be. Kitty closed her eyes. I guess she was trying to blot it out. But I could see the other couples looking, whispering. And one by one, dropping away over into a small group that got larger. There were only about six of us left when the waltz ended. That's when the stranger and a couple of his pals walked out onto the floor. They were drifters. Probably been in town for a week. And they were having their fun before they moved on. Marshal, I got a painful duty. Yeah? Uh, folks in this town seem real upset about you bringing that... Mm, woman in here. What's your name? I'm just a fella. I kind of made myself and my friends here a committee of three, seeing as how everything's done by committees here, and we... <laughs> yeah, we figured it would be best if you take your... Um, friend home. Mister, I'm the marshal in Dodge City, and I... I'm leaving. You're staying here, Kitty. She's smarter than you, Marshal. Everything all right? Everything's fine, Chester. This ain't a matter of law, you know, Marshal. It's decency and, and, and what's right. Yeah, and Marshal, this ain't right. Mister, I'm taking this badge off. Chester, you stay here with Kitty. Matt, don't you do it. Now, come Matt. on outside. You... We're going to talk some more about this out there. Ah, oh, it's cold outside. Now, you be a good fella and get out of where you ain't wanted. You know, I won't hit you in here, don't you? Were you thinking of doing that, Marshal? Now, that ain't lawful. I ain't done nothing. Kitty. Kitty, wait. Now, now there's a gal with sense. All right, yeah. mister. Now, I'm telling you... You and your pals are going to have to come out sooner or later. And when you do, you better start hightailing it out of Dodge before I catch up with you. We'll think of that. Oh, sure. We sure will. <laughs> Marshal. Just three no-good drifters. Hating the law. Finding pleasure in trouble. Kitty had gone, and I went out into the street. It had stopped snowing. Just cold. Much colder. I went up to the Texas Trail. There was only two people in there. Some guy, dead drunk on a table, and someone else standing at the bar, looking into the mirror at me. Um, what do you have, Mr. Dillon? Nothing, sir. Yeah. Uh, uh, I got some things to do in the back. You give me a call if anyone comes in, will you? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm... I'm... I'm sorry, kid. Shut up. I, I'm sorry. I'm, 
That bad. No kidding. Oh, it's all right. Sure, it's all right. That's so mad. I, I could... Yeah, I know. I should have known better. No, it was me, not you. No, it wasn't that either. It was all those polite ladies and gentlemen. Give me a kerchief, will you? Yeah. Here. It's been a long time since I cried. Yeah, sure. It wasn't so much for me for you. I, want, I wanted to cry right there in the hall, watching you and knowing there was nothing you could do. Nice mess of people we got in Dodge. No, it's not them, man. It's me. I've run into this before. The only difference was I didn't have you around. I wanted it to be right tonight because of you. A lot of narrow-minded prayers spouting. Yeah. They hurt your pride, didn't they? No. No, it, it wasn't that. No? No, I... I wanted you to go with me. That made me real happy. But maybe we're different, Matt. You and me figure life different to them. That's not their fault. There's a lot of folks there I know. I, I smile at them on the street. They talk to me. But tonight, well, that was different. I made them uncomfortable. Yeah? Well, I didn't do a bad job with you. Oh, you can't look at it that way. And you can't go fighting the whole town, either. There's three fellas gonna get hurt. No, I don't want you to do, th do that, Matt. You just... Let it go. Let it go, Matt. They don't mean nothing. You know what means something to me? What? That you asked me to go to the dance with you. I knew what was going to happen, but it was worth the chance. I thank you for it, Matt. You're a funny one. Am I? <laughs> but you sure showed them up, those women. <laughs> the way you look. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> you know, you look pretty fine yourself. Sam? Yeah? Uh, you got any champagne, Sam? What? Have I got any what? Champagne. Well, yeah. I guess maybe. A bottle or two? Yeah, maybe. Sure. Well, break it out. All right. Miss Kitty, I think the next dance is mine. Oh, Matt. Please, Mr. Dillon. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Anthony Ellis, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. 
Featured in the cast were John Daner, Vivi Janice, Bob Sweeney, Lawrence Dobkin, and Mary Lansing. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Don't miss Robert Trout and his timely roundup of world news tomorrow on most of these same CBS radio stations. Roy Rowan speaking. And remember, Amos and Andy are here every Sunday on the CBS radio network. The friendship between Matt and Kitty, who lent her name to that episode of Gunsmoke over Thanksgiving weekend in 1952. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey co-produces the show, and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at WAMU.org or on Twitter at WAMU 88.5. And please visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. Sometimes in radio, especially in old-time radio, you can tell when the producers need to fill time. And at the beginning of tonight's Dragnet episode, you'll hear more about Detective Smith's game of canasta than you ever wanted to know. But the discussion does nothing to minimize the tension that follows in a case called The Big Rip. It comes from April 19th, 1953, NBC, AFRTS, and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a burglary detail. A string of safe burglaries breaks out in your city. In the past two months, 35 safes have been broken into. You know there's more than one man in the operation. You've got no lead to the thieves' identity. Your job? Get them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, August 18th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 1.34 p.m. when we got to the second floor of the central jail building. The crime lab. Couldn't sleep last night. Faye and I had another beef. Oh, what about this time? Cards, you know, can I ask them? Yeah? Folks next door came over after dinner and we got to playing. They play real good. Mm-hmm. It wasn't long before we were really getting schlocked. What? You know, schlock. Beaten. Oh, terrible. Yeah. Last hand, they go down right away, Joe. Seemed like everything I threw them, they could use. Picked up everything. I, know, I couldn't do anything right. Just kept building up Mel's, they did. 
big thing for us was to get out as quick as we could. You know, get the hand over with. Yeah. Faye wasn't doing any good. Finally, I still don't know how they let it happen. I got enough points to go down, so I asked Faye if it's okay. Uh-huh. You have to do that. You know, ask your partner's permission yeah, to get uh-huh. the hand over. Yeah. You know that? Well, I played it a couple of times. Yeah, with you, remember? Oh, that's right. Well, you might not believe it, but you know what she said? No. Just sat there and said she didn't think it was time. Is that right? Yeah. I know it's kind of picky, but there they were, the other kids just piling up points, schlocking us all over the place. Schlocking. Yeah, hand went around a couple of more times. Each time I asked Faye if she wants to get out, each time you know what she says? No. That's it? No. Well, what finally happened? Oh, the other folks ran out of cards. Wasn't any more play, so they got out. 3,600 points. And I found out why Faye didn't want to quit. Why? Had a deuce. What? A deuce, a two, you know? Yeah. Well, she said she didn't want to get caught with it. Yeah, well, we better get started, huh? Uh, wait a minute, that's not the worst of it, let me tell you. All right. All night we're playing, see? All night. I'm saving cards, you know, I'm like tens. Like to get tens, I save tens. Yeah, I guess everybody saves tens. Well, I save more than other guys. We get all through, and you know what? We find out there are only seven tens in the deck. One of them's missing. All night, there's seven tens. Well, that's dreadful. Well, I tell you, you're a schlock. Schlock. Didn't sleep a wink. <laughs> Friday? Yeah, Ray. Back here. Girls out to lunch. Come on back. Hi, how's it going, Ray? Mm, moving around's about all. Hot out, huh? Yeah, paper says it's going to go over 90 today. Too hot for me. Yep. Well, how are you coming on the job this morning? Just finishing up. Looks like the rest of them. Yeah. Got some pictures here. Take a look. Mm-hmm. Here's the pictures of the marks they left on the door this morning. Mm-hmm. See those two long scratches on the wood? Yeah, here? Yeah, now, over here, here's a picture from the Argosy Manufacturing Company's door. Mm-hmm. See? Yeah. Same two marks. Pretty safe bet to figure that both doors were open to the same pry bar. Yeah, same type of entrance made this time, huh? Yeah, just the one mark on the door. You know what they're doing. Insert the bar, hit it once, and the door opens. Mm-hmm. How about the safe? What do you got on that? Right here. This is the picture we got out of the room, same as the others. Standard rip job, nothing different there. How about marks? No, no, help there. Here's the pictures. Looks like the same tool that was used on the other jobs. Did you find anything else, Ray? No, at least nothing that helps. Leighton Prince picked up a couple from the safe, along with the manager of the place. Nothing else to give us anything. Oh, I'd say that was the same bunch. Yeah, either that or they're lending their tools to the boys in the neighborhood. Yeah, well, that isn't likely. Cigarette, Ray? Yeah, thanks. Frank? There's the light. Ray? Thanks. Really leaning on you guys for this one, huh? Yeah, Skipper's taking a lot of heat. What's this make for him? 34, 35? 35. Six months. Get any nearer to him? No, not much. Got anything to tell how many men there are? It'd be hard to say for sure. The way they work, figures about three or four, maybe. Yeah, that's the way it looks. Take that number to pull off the operation as smooth as they're doing it, though, Ray. You got anything at all to work on? Well, we checked around town. There aren't any rumbles. One of the tightest gangs that we've seen in a long time. Doesn't seem like anybody outside knows what's going on. We checked the places around. Nobody's spending a lot of money they can't account for. How much did it take so far? Well, what they got this morning, let's see, it comes to a little under $36,000, isn't it, Frank? Yeah. What about you, Ray? You turn up anything we can use? Nothing that points anyplace. We know how they got in, how they hit the safe. That isn't going to help much. Same M.O. as the others. You haven't got any idea who they are, huh? No, nothing. Have any idea who they are? We could maybe use the anthracene on their tools. Uh, that's great. We've got to find the tools before we use that. We've got no idea where they plant them. Mm-hmm. 
Seems that one of your informants would be able to come up with something on it. Yeah, you'd think so. We've checked them all, Ray. No leads to the gang. Doesn't seem there's anybody in town that knows who they are. Anybody new operating around? No, we checked that out, too. We've had the stats office make so many runs that they're wearing out the cards. M.O. isn't new. It's been used before, but all the possibles have been checked out. Stuff from Brereton up at CII, the other lead from the APBs, they've all been cleared. Now, we got just what we started with the gang working when they want to, where they want to, and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, I wish there was more I could do to help out. Yeah. i got to get back to work. Got some precipitant tests. Homicide wants this afternoon. Yeah, well, we'll see you later, Ray. Right. You want this stuff booked? Yeah, we'll take care of it. Okay. Excuse me a minute. Yeah. Crime lab, Pinker. Yeah? Yeah, they're both here. Which one? Yeah, hold on. Joe? Yeah? You, office. Thanks. Friday. Oh, yeah, Janet. Uh-huh. Wendy, call. Yeah, well, what's that number? Four, four? Right. Yeah, I'll call him right away. Right. Bye. Chandler, huh? Yeah, Don Jackson called. Said he wanted to get in touch with us. Jackson? Doesn't ring any bells. It's the guy we pinched last month. Remember? Looked like the guy who was in on the service station jobs. Oh, yeah, I remember. Guy with the wax mustache, huh? Mm-hmm. Hello. Don Jackson? Well, could I speak to him, please? Don, it's Joe Friday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's 1.47 now. Take us about ten minutes. How about two? All right, fine. Yeah, we know where it is. Right. We'll see you there. All right, bye. What's he want? He wants to see us about the rip jobs. Yeah. Says he's got a rumble on him. Don Jackson had been a suspect in a series of service station burglaries we'd investigated. He'd been picked up and interrogated, but investigation showed that he couldn't have been involved in the thefts. Since he'd been released, we'd heard nothing from him, and as far as we knew, he'd gone back to his job in a downtown clothing store. From what he told me on the phone, he had some information about the current series of safe burglaries. 1.48 p.m., Frank and I left the crime lab and drove over to the store where Jackson worked. He managed to get relieved, and he took us to a small coffee shop near the store. We sat down and ordered some coffee, and Jackson told us what he knew about the burglaries. Now, I could be wrong about this. I don't think so. But outside, it could be. Uh Uh-huh. Donnie, you got any one reason for figuring that the Scott fellow's tied in with the jobs? Oh, nothing I could put my finger on, you know. Just that the guy's never done a full day's work in his life. Don't think he knows what a callus is. Yet he's always loaded, always got a roll. It's real, too. Not like them you see sometimes with a big bill on the outside and ones in the middle. Now, this guy's loaded, you know? Yeah. Where'd you meet him? Well, I was sitting in a bar down the street one night, having a belt before dinner. We got to talking. Ended up meeting together that night. You remember when this was, Don, when you first met him? Well, let me see. Uh, yeah, it was the day I got the trench coat from England. Now, let me see, uh, that make it about uh, August 4th, yeah. Yeah, it was the night I got the coat. Come to think of it, that's what got us to talk in the coat. I don't understand. Well, you see, I got this here coat. I had it sent over from England. That's a real beauty. All kinds of linings and wind straps in the sleeves. It's great, you know? Uh-huh. Well, I had him send this coat to the store. Got down the 4th. I had it with me that night. And Scotty noticed it. We got to talking about clothes and went to dinner. He asked me how much a coat cost. I told him run about 40, maybe 50 bucks. He asked me if I could get one for him, and I told him sure. It'd take a couple weeks. Uh-huh. Well, he asked me to send a letter to my friend, Airmail Special, and ask him to send the coat over by Express. I told him I would, and then he asked me if I wanted to pay me then. Yeah. I told him no, wait till I knew just how much the coat was going to run, you know, duty and postage and all that. Yeah, I know. Well, he said that'd be okay with him. I saw him a couple times after that, and every time he'd ask about the coat. 
I told him that was in the works, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, finally got the coat. It was beautiful. Never saw the guy again. I'm out 46 bucks. Promise God to leave me with that coat. My own money, too. 46 bucks. I don't make enough to lose that kind of money, you know. Well, that's too bad, Jackson. But why do you figure this Scott had anything to do with the burglaries? Well, now, I just told you. For one thing, the money. Always had a lot, but I never had a job. No place to get the money. Not only that, but one night... Well, I saw him. We were going out to dinner. And he said he couldn't quite make it then. That something had come up. That he had to take a rain check, you know? Uh-huh. Well, I asked him what had come up, what was so important. He said he had to see a guy over in East L.A., some sort of a business deal. You say what this deal was about? No, he wouldn't say. The next day he shows up loaded. Got to roll on and choke a horse. Now I asked him where to get it. I kid him about being one of the guys who ripped the safe in the Argosy plant. What did he say to that? Nothing. Just got real serious, you know? Asked me why I asked him that. What well, made me think he was in on the job? I kept telling him I didn't know anything about it. I was just kidding. He finally bought it and said it was okay, but he said I shouldn't go around saying things like that. All right, go ahead. <clears throat> Well, I got the coat and looked Scotty up to give it to him. Wouldn't pay for it. They lost the coat thing up or something. I don't know. Set the wrong size and I'm stuck with it. He wouldn't have anything to do with it. I figured since I ordered it for him, it ain't my fault that it's big. He should pay for it, you know, 46 bucks. Now, any way you look at it, I laid out the dough. I figured he should make good on it. He wouldn't do it. And I got sore and I figured that maybe you'd like to know how he acted about the Argosy job. Lousy bum. Forty-six bucks that coat cost. You know where the Scott lives? No, I haven't got the slightest idea. But I got his phone number, though. I'll give you that. Can you give us a description on him? Sure, he's a sneaky little guy. No wonder the coat won't fit. Little bitty guy, you know. Yeah, now you say his full name is Leonard Scott, is that right? Yeah, crummy bum. I hope you get him. Well, we'll talk to him, Don. He knows something about it. I'll bet money on it. He knows. Say, I don't like to bring this up, but uh, you guys could do me a big favor, you know. What's that? Mm, no, I don't suppose you could. What is it, Don? You know anybody could use a size 52 trench coat? We continued to talk to Don Jackson. We got the description of Leonard Scott and his phone number. 3.15 p.m., we drove back to the city hall and checked the name through R&I. We came up with several possibles. The mug shots were pulled on them, and they were shown to Jackson. He was able to identify one of them as the man he told us about. The suspect had a record for burglary and had served two terms in the state penitentiary at San Quentin. He'd served his full term and was not on parole. We checked the last address on his convict registration card and we found that he lived in a rooming house on West 11th Street. The phone number he'd given Jackson was the same as the one on the registration card. We drove over to talk to him. We found that he wasn't in his room and from the landlady we learned that he was expected back around 7 that evening. We checked his room in company with the landlady, and then we called the office and told them where we were in the event they had to contact us. We waited in the living room of the house for the suspect to return. 7.15 p.m. Joe. Yeah. He matches the description, doesn't he? Come on. Just a minute. You Leonard Scott? Yeah. Who are you? Police officers like to talk to you. What's this all about? It'd be better if we went up to your room. Oh. All right. Come on up. Can't you give me some idea what this is all about? We'll talk to you about it. Go ahead. Open the door. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, what's the pitch? You've been through it before. You're an ex-con. You know the pitch. You tell us what you do for a living? I work. Doing what? I'm a salesman. What do you sell? Different things. What's all this proof? You guys coming in here making like big men? I'm going straight. I work for a living. 
Now, either tell me what this is all about or get out of here. You remember what you were doing on August 4th? It's a long time ago. You remember what you were doing? I have to think about it. It's a long time ago. Right, you take your time. We'd like to know. August 4th, huh? Yeah. No, sorry, fellas. Can't remember a thing. How about the 5th? Same there. 6th? Nothing. How about the 7th of August? Oh, I can give you a hand there. I had a dinner with a friend. Then we went to a show. I had a few drinks after, and then I came home. Who's the friend? Fella I know. What's his name? Why I gotta tell you that? We gotta check your alibi. What do I need an alibi for? I haven't done anything. My time's clean. I got nothing to explain to you. Now, maybe you can clear up a few things for us. I would like to help the cops out. What do you want to know? How come you remember what you were doing on August 7th? You got trouble with time before then, haven't you? What's so important with the dates? Maybe if you tell me what you're after, I can help you out. You quit being cagey, maybe I can come up with the answers. The Argosy Manufacturing Plant had their safe ripped open on that night. You look good for the job. Oh, you're out of your mind. Yeah, we got a witness who tells us you showed up with a pocket full of money the next day. You've fallen twice before for burglary. You can't account for your time before or after the day, but you happen to have an alibi for the night of the heist. You got no steady job, but you got plenty of money. Now, come off it, Scott. We got you nailed for the jobs, and you know it. You got a choice of giving us a hand on this thing, and it'll be marked down in your favor, or you can be a big man and stand for this thing alone. It's up to you. We'll play it any way you want. You figure you can make me for the jobs? Looks like it won't be too tough. You're in the middle, Scott. Why don't you cop out? What do I get for turning pink? I told you it'd be marked down that way. How about it, Scott? All right, I guess I gotta go with you. I wasn't in on the jobs. I didn't really have anything to do with the casing. I helped a little bit. Not much, just a little. Where'd you figure in it? Once I worked as a lookout for him. Who are they? I can give you the names. Like to see you get them, lousy bunch. Hope you get them good. Make every one of them lousy bums the way they treated me. What do you mean by that? Big deal. Have the cops running around in circles. Big deal. Nothing. Work along with them. Everything will be fine. Big deal. How many of them are there? Four. Four real bums. They said they were going to take care of me. They told me I'd get my share of the money. Lousy liars. One job I was with them. After that, they told me I hadn't done enough to earn my way, that I wasn't any help to anybody. Well, next time you see them, you can tell them. Yeah? They were wrong. We got the names of the four men who were involved in the burglaries. We took Leonard Scott down to the city hall and pulled the packages on the four suspects. He gave us a positive identification on them. We checked with Captain Wisdom and it was decided to wait until we could catch the suspects in the actual attempt to commit a burglary. We checked out the address of the four suspects and got as much information as we could on them without letting them know that they were under surveillance. Additional teams of men were assigned to the stakeout. Each of them was watched 24 hours a day, and each of the teams of detectives were in constant contact with the burglary division. Two days passed. None of the suspects made any attempt to make contact with the others. We met with the district attorney, and it was decided that, in the interest of bringing the gang to justice, the first suspect, Leonard Scott, should be released from custody to act as an informant for us. He would be kept under constant surveillance. Frank and I were assigned to follow him. In the next three days, he went about his business as usual. Each evening, he'd leave his rooming house and walk through the bars in the downtown area. He told us that contact and information regarding the burglaries was made by the leader of the gang, one of the suspects named Howard Ramsey. On Monday, August 24th, we saw Ramsey approach Leonard Scott. They talked briefly in the rear of a bar on 6th Street, and then Ramsey left. We waited for about 15 minutes, and then we saw Scott leave the bar. We followed him down the street to an all-night coffee stand. We sat down next to him at the counter, and at the first opportunity, he told us what Ramsey had said. You guys haven't got long to wait. What'd he say? Deal's set. It's going to be a machine shop out in West L.A. Rumble is the safe has over 25 grand in it. Biggest job they've tackled. He say how it's going to work? Yeah, I'll fill you in on it. Thought you might want to get in touch with your office, so... How's that? They're going to work tonight.
are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. p.m. We got the rest of the story from Leonard Scott. The plan, as he outlined it for us, was that the four other suspects would not meet until they were at the plant that was to be burglarized. We got in touch with the men who were following the suspects and told them what had happened. 10.07 p.m. We met with Captain Wisdom and put the operating plan into effect. It had been arranged that all of the men following the suspects would be in three-way radio cars so that constant communication could be kept between the units of the operation. Additional officers were planted on the roofs of the buildings surrounding the plant to be burglarized. These men would be equipped with walkie-talkies so they could keep in constant touch with each other and with us in a three-way radio car. In this way, we could direct operations and we'd have a complete picture of what was happening in the immediate vicinity. A blockade system was set up to be put into operation once the suspects had entered the trap so that escape would be impossible. 11.45 p.m. The plan was completed and the men involved were in their assigned positions. We followed Leonard Scott to his rooming house and he changed to his working clothes. He came out of his house and we followed him out the freeway to Hollywood. From there, he drove out Sunset Boulevard to Whittier Drive in Beverly Hills, and then he went out Wilshire Boulevard toward West L.A. As we drove, we could hear the other units reporting the position of the men that they were following. All of the suspects left their homes at approximately the same time, and it looked as if they would get to the plant within a couple of minutes of the scheduled time. Scott had told us that they would not meet at the plant, but they'd rendezvous at a drive-in a couple of blocks from the plant. There, they would be given their instructions. 2.16 a.m., the five cars pulled into the drive-in, and after a brief conversation, they all left and drove toward the plant. 2.23 a.m., all the police units got into their positions as arranged. Frank and I took up our position, and we listened to the reports coming in over the radio. Unit 1 KY-80, Unit 1 KY-80, Rubles, come in. Unit 1 KY-80 to Rubles, go ahead. I'm on the roof of the building directly across the street from the factory, Joe. I can see the suspects now. How many of them are there? I can see three. I think there's a couple more at the corner as lookouts. Hey, Donovan's down the block. Maybe he can see the others. Unit 1 KY at O to Donovan. Come in, please. Over. This is Donovan. Yeah, there's one of them on the corner down here. He drove up and got out to take a look at the motor of his car. He's over there working on it now. Uh, this Rubles, I can see another one at the other corner. He's changing a tire. Uh, got the jack under the car, but he's not trying to get the wheel off. Uh, the others are at the factory door now. Do you see anything where you are, Joe? Not much. Shadows across the street. I can't see the doorway. What are they doing now? Uh, they're inside now. They forced the lock on the door and got inside. Uh, door's closed. Now, I can't see them anymore, Joe. All units, this is Friday in Unit 1KY80. All units move in to apprehend suspects. Repeat, move in to apprehend suspects. Units 2R4, 5, 6, and 7, and Unit 2R20 move to blockade positions. All right, let's go. All right. They got the place covered and back okay? Yeah, all covered. All right. This ought to do it, huh? Right. All right, let's go. Yeah. Well, I got the lookout. Yeah, I see. Well, let's take it easy, huh? back there. Looks like the office. Wait a minute. Yeah. All of them must be back there. Sounds like they're putting the bar into the back of the safe, doesn't it? Yeah. Rubles? 
Let's go. They're in the office now. You want to move in from that side? Right. All right. Let's go. All right. Get on it. We haven't got all night. That safe built like a sardine can. There's no reason to take this along. Well, we're doing the best we can. We got the ten of firebricks giving us trouble. Yeah, let me take a look. All right, hold it right where you are. Cops, let's get out of here. Watch him, Joe. I'll get him. Right. Come on, Ramsey. You got no place to go. The building's surrounded. Back in, Joe. Get out of here, cops. You're never gonna take us. Hold it up. Don't shoot anymore. I give up. I give up. Come on, cops. Come on again. He ain't talking for me. I've had it. I don't want any more shooting. I give up. I right, throw your guns out here. He's <laughs> mine. All right. Come on out of here. Get over there. Get your hands back of your head. Stand right there and don't move. I gave up, didn't I? I didn't want any more of it. Come on, Ramsey. Your partner was smart. Why don't you play it that way, too? You come and get me, cop. All right. You win. I'm out of shells. Don't shoot. Throw that gun out here. All right, now, come on out of there. Keep your hands back of your head. Come on, move. That's good, right there. All right, all right. Come on, Ramsey. Over there next to your partner. Now, stand still, both of you. Put your hands against the wall. Stand still or don't move. All right, they're clean, Joe. All right. There were three of them. Where's the other one? I made a break for the front door. They got him out there. Well, lousy luck all the way around. How'd you know? Who told you? That doesn't make any difference. Well, somebody had to tell you. You'd never have found out if somebody had yeah, told you. Yeah, that's right. Come on, let's go now. Well, who told you? Who turned Fink? Somebody had to tell you, didn't well, they? don't you worry about it, mister. What do you mean? You're going to have a lot of time to figure it out. Now, let's go. The story you've just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On January 14th, trial was held in Department 89, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Howard Allen, Ramsey, Jack Irwin, MacArthur, and the other two suspects were tried and convicted of 15 counts of burglary in the first degree. They received sentences as prescribed by law. Burglary in the first degree is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not less than five years. Because of his cooperation, Leonard James Scott was given a lighter sentence and at the conclusion of his prison term was placed on probation for a period of two years. Ladies and gentlemen, we wish to thank the editors of TV Guide for the cover picture and story on Dragnet. You can get TV Guide at your favorite newsstand. just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Olin Soule, Vic Perrin, Jack Crucian. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Dragnet, the episode called The Big Rip from the spring of 1953. 
You heard it here on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. In honoring National Radio Day this coming Tuesday, August 20th, I noted earlier that the first commercial radio broadcast, at least in the popular imagination, was the report of the 1920 presidential election over Pittsburgh station KDKA. What made it the largest popular vote up to that time was the participation of millions of American women who, just that year, had gotten the right to go to the polls. It came via the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which had finally been ratified on August 18, 1920, exactly 99 years ago tonight. No individual worked harder, nor ultimately more successfully, for women's suffrage than the activist on some of our one-dollar coins, Susan B. Anthony. Her life and struggles were heroic. So it's not surprising that the radio show Inheritance made them the basis for one of their patriotic episodes. The series was a collaboration among the American Legion, the American Legion Women's Auxiliary, and the network NBC. From that network, on March 27, 1955, it's the episode called Their Rights and Nothing Less, from the series Inheritance. Amendments to the Constitution of the United States, Article 19. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. August 26, 1920. is Inheritance, presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with the American Legion. Stories out of the great fabric of the American past. Stories of our inheritance. Today, their rights and nothing less. On the second Tuesday of November in the year of our Lord, 1920, an event took place in these United States that many citizens were convinced would never happen. Less than two months before, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was declared in effect by the Secretary of State, and for the first time in our history, women voted. Not quite the first time, though. Fifty years before, one woman had voted because she believed that women, as well as men, were citizens. Her name was Susan B. Anthony. I was born in South Adams, Massachusetts, the daughter of Daniel Anthony, a Quaker, and Lucy Reed, a Baptist. I suppose the progeny of any such union was foredestined to be unorthodox. Certainly, I was all of that. But I was blessed with an understanding father who was far in advance of his time. We were fairly well-to-do. By some standards, we were even considered wealthy. 
And so it was all but inconceivable to those who knew us that I should do anything but sit at home and play the part of a young lady. Because I had other ideas, and Father was kind enough to indulge me, I was sent away to boarding school to be educated. To be sure, the place was known as a seminary for females, and the curriculum was designed to teach the principles of humility, morality, and a love of virtue, all in capital letters. Nevertheless, it was the beginning of an education, and that is what I desired. Unfortunately, my stay at the school was all too short. I was summoned home by my father to receive some shocking news. I don't know how to tell thee, Susan, but uh, I believe it best to do these things simply and without unnecessary embellishment. Yes, Father. To be blunt, my business has failed. Father. That is why I sent for thee. But what does it all mean? How serious is it? Serious indeed. Everything we once owned now belongs to our creditors. But everything is such a general term. How much? What things? I have the inventory list. Look at it. Why, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. But true. Mother's wedding presents, oh, that isn't fair. It is the law. But the tea and coffee from our pantry shelves. My spectacles and the family Bible. All these belong to the creditors. But this, surely not this. Oh, yes, yes. Clothing and underclothing of the wife and daughters. Are we to be turned naked into the streets? No. I have let thee see the worst. There is a hopeful side, too. Oh, thank heavens. Thy mother's brother... Thy mother's brother has already entered a bid for all our personal possessions. He has promised to restore them to us at once. I, of course, will repay him the moment my new business permits me. New business? You're starting again, Father. Certainly, but not here. We're going to move, Susan. We're going to a place called Hard Scrabble. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> if I agree, the name is a forbidding one. I shall have it changed. Perhaps we shall call it uh, Center Falls. Well, I shall like that much better. And I can teach school there, Father, to help with the expenses. Yes, indeed. I was counting on that. Father was as good as his word. <laughs> we were not turned naked into the streets. And hard scrabble did indeed become center falls. More than that, Father rebuilt his ruined fortunes, and we were soon quite prosperous again. It was now possible for me to stop working and become a lady once more. But I had had my taste of independence and become intoxicated by it. I was at the age now where people were beginning to speak rather desperately about my prospects. Meaning, of course, my prospects of becoming someone's wife. There were suitors, but I had other ideas. You think it's likely to rain today, Miss Susan? It might. We need it for the crops. Yes, it's been very dry. Oh, oh, up there. Well, why are we stopping? Uh, Miss Susan, uh... Yes? Miss Susan, may I have your permission to speak? Why do you need my permission? You've managed very well without it. Well, well you know what I mean. I suppose you're going to propose to me. Why, Miss Susan... Well, you have a way of coming straight to the point. I was raised to speak my mind. Yes. Well, it has its advantages. But now you've left me without much to add. Fact is, Miss Susan, I'd be honored to have you for my wife. Why? Well, I beg your pardon? Why would you be honored? 
Why me particularly? Well, because you're a fine figure of a woman and one I'd be proud to call my wife. And rear your children? Well, yes. Yes, rear my children. Thank you very much. But I was born free, and I rather like it that way. It was a momentous decision I made that day. The year was 1849, and those were stirring times. I remember one morning in my father's home. Morning, Susan. Morning, Father. Mm, so there is my newspaper. Hmm? I've been looking everywhere for it. Oh, I'm sorry, Father. Here, take it. I don't want to deprive the other. No, no, no. I'm through. Very well, then. Uh, uh, tell me, Susan, what uh, what is in here that is so interesting to thee? The gold rush, Father. And that appeals to thee? Oh, I realize it's out of the question for me, Father, but I, I find it exciting just the same. <laughs> Does that sound foolish to you? Not at all. I find it exciting, too. But there is even more exciting news if you look for it. Well, what do you mean? Uh, this, uh, this item about the married woman's property bill. I didn't see that. What is it? New York State has passed a law adjusting certain ancient inequities and giving married women the right to own property. Oh, let me see. Now, now, now don't tear the paper. Excuse me, Father. <laughs> Besides, there is not much in this story except an account of the passage of the bill and an editorial denouncing it roundly. Denouncing it? Of course. The editorial, after all, was written by a man. But you don't denounce it. No. But then I am a Quaker. And I've been taught to believe in the basic equality of all God's creatures. <laughs> Even women? Yes, child. <laughs> Even women. It is not often that you can date the beginning of a life's work from a single event. But I date mine from that morning when I became interested in the married woman's property bill. I wanted to know who was responsible for its passage. And I learned that it was, naturally enough, a woman. Her name was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And she was the leader of what she called the Rebellion Against Masculine Monopoly. I wanted to know more of her and her work. And so I went to a meeting to hear her speak. The legal code of America, like that of every other country in the world, has relegated the women to a position of undignified inferiority. In accordance with this code, every woman is a perpetual minor. She can never grow up to legal majority. If she marries, she becomes the property of her husband. If she remains a spinster, she is obliged to assign her property to a male guardian. No married woman is allowed to sue for breach of contract, to retain the wages she has earned for her work, or to receive damages for injury done to her person or her character. In every case, the husband is the beneficiary. He is not only the arbiter of her fate and fortune, but the owner of her children. He can give away or will away the children without the mother's consent. And even though he is proved to be a degenerate or a drunkard, he becomes the children's sole custodian in the event of divorce. A man is allowed to beat his wife, his children, and his dog. And a woman is not allowed to divorce her husband even on the ground of cruelty. 
Every American woman is, in short, a slave. As I listened to Elizabeth Cady Stanton speak, it was like hearing a voice put to my own beliefs. I resolved to meet this woman and join her in her fight. And so began a lifelong friendship between two pioneers of a worldwide movement whose repercussions were to be felt down through the decades. Susan had found the courage and the encouragement to voice her own beliefs, and she lost little time in making her existence known in the smugly masculine world of her day. In Rochester, New York, in August of 1853, a teacher's convention was the occasion of her first public utterance. Oh, isn't it exciting, Miss Anthony? This is my first teacher's convention, you know. I find it more disturbing than exciting. Disturbing? But why? Well, look around you. At least two-thirds of us here are women. Yet it is only the men who really take part in the proceedings. But of course. Well, isn't that the way these things are always conducted? That's why I find it disturbing. I'm sure I don't see why. I don't believe in minority rule. Do you actually believe that all wisdom and knowledge is vested in those creatures up front? Just because they happen to be men? Do you concede that they need no aid, no counsel from the majority here? Well, I never looked at it in quite that way. No, and neither did most of the others. To me, the most humiliating fact of all is that these women around us are perfectly satisfied with the inferior position assigned them. My goodness. Well, you know, it's too bad you can't make a speech here. I intend to. To make a speech? Of a sort. Oh, but you can't. Well, not here. It... It just isn't done. The rules say that anyone paying a dollar is entitled to all the rights and privileges of a delegate. Well, I have paid my dollar, and I intend to speak. Oh, dear. If the idea distresses you, you can always change your seat. Oh, no. I wouldn't miss it for the world. But what will Mr. Davies say? The fact that our chairman is an instructor at West Point and is here in full military regalia is hardly going to stop me. But he looks so imposing up there, so so forbidding. Yes. The great Mogul in person. We're going to reconvene. Fellow delegates, the meeting will resume. The subject under discussion is why the profession of teacher is not as much respected as that of lawyer, doctor, or minister. Mr. President! Mr. President! What will the lady have? Mr. President, I wish to speak to the question under discussion. What did you say, madam? I wish to speak to the question under discussion. Yes, yes, I thought that is what you said. Uh, gentlemen of the convention, uh, what is your pleasure? Well, a woman has never spoken in our convention. Is that lady back there some kind of radical? I say, let her speak. She's a delegate like the rest of us. Fully 30 minutes, the battle raged on the floor of the convention. One male delegate after another expressed himself, and all the while, the neat little woman far in the back of the hall remained upon her feet, because she was afraid she would lose the floor and end the debate. Finally, the question was put to a vote, with only the men being permitted to take part. Uh, the uh, results of the voting having been tabulated by the secretary, I'm ready to announce the outcome. Uh, on the proposition, should the lady delegate be permitted to speak, 
Those voting aye, 104. Those voting no, 102. The ayes have it. <laughs> Madam, you have heard the will of the convention. You may speak to the question. Thank you, Mr. President. Most of us have probably forgotten the question by now. It was why the profession of teacher is not as much respected as that of lawyer, doctor, or minister. It seems to me you fail to comprehend the cause of the disrespect of which you complain. Do you not see that so long as society says woman has not brains enough to be a doctor, lawyer, or minister, but has plenty to be a teacher, every man of you who condescends to teach tacitly admits before all Israel and the sun that he has no more brains than a woman. The reaction to Miss Anthony's speech was, to say the least, mixed. But she had attracted attention to her cause. She was alternately praised and damned in the press of the nation, but people were beginning to listen. And then, just when her work gave promise of bearing fruit, there was a long and terrible interruption, the Civil War. All suffrage work stopped until the nation again was whole. Then Elizabeth Cady Stanton formed a newspaper called The True Republic. Its motto? Men, their rights, and nothing more. Women, their rights. And nothing less. The paper was dedicated to the task of securing for American women their privileges as people. At last, the climate seemed right for the movement, and Susan had high hopes when she talked to one of the political leaders of the day. Yes, indeed, Miss Anthony. I know very well the purpose of your visit, and may I add, I sympathize with it completely. Oh, that's very gratifying, Senator. Naturally, I know there must be an amendment to the Constitution if the newly freed slaves are to get the vote. And it is your hope that this amendment will include the members of your sex? Is it too much to ask? We are also former slaves, you know. Well, I would hardly put it that way. <laughs> Only because you've never been a woman, Senator. <laughs> I can't very well deny that fact, I suppose. Senator, I have read the draft of the proposed 14th Amendment... Three times the word male is used. Yes, I am aware of that. We want it stricken from the amendment wherever it appears. May I ask who wants this, Miss Anthony? Every female. The appearance of that single word in the final draft would mean the defeat of everything we have fought and struggled for. Miss Anthony, I must be very frank with you. As I said before, my sympathies are with you. If I may speak for a number of my colleagues in the Senate, theirs are likewise with you. But there is always that one small word, but. There is another word, neither so small nor perhaps so inoffensive. The word is expediency. I warned you that I would be frank. The best minds in the country sincerely believe that at this particular time, political expediency dictates against any such deletion as you propose. I see. You understand, then? No, Senator. I do not understand. But I do see. I see that everything we've worked for is to be destroyed at this late date by your political expediency. Good day, sir. 
single decision regarding the use of the word nail in the 14th Amendment was the greatest blow the cause of suffrage had ever sustained. There is just one course for me to follow now. I must begin again at the bottom and work without cessation until we compel the Constitution of the United States to recognize the political rights of women. You are working late again, Susan. Uh, how does the amendment read now? I know it by heart. The right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. On account of race, color, sex, or previous condition of servitude. Oh, surely they'll include the word. So many leaders in the party have committed themselves, have declared their belief in the right of women to vote. In principle only. I'm afraid we're going to run into the same phrase that ruined us last time. Such an infuriating phrase. There's no way to argue against it. I'm sorry, Mrs. Stanton. I'm sorry, Miss Anthony. But it is not politically expedient at this time. Those were the words the politicians and the statesmen again used. The time was not right. It was not yet politically expedient to give women the right to be citizens. The 15th Amendment became a part of the Constitution in 1870, and the vital word was missing. By this time, the National Women's Suffrage Association had been formed, with Mrs. Stanton as president and Susan Anthony on the executive committee. We have so much hope and pluck that none but the good father knows how we have suffered when with the 14th and 15th Amendments even friends have crucified us. But we shall fight on. A way will open to us. Elizabeth... I think I may have found the way. Found it? What are you talking about, Susan? The 14th Amendment. I've been studying it closely. It's so much longer than the 15th. There's so much more room for doubt. Oh, the finest legal minds in the country have been looking for that loophole, my dear. It's no use. But it is open to interpretation. Now, listen. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States and so on. All through that first section, they refer to citizens, not to male citizens. Yes, yes, I, I know all that. I've been over it myself time and again. The language makes no reference to age either. Surely you don't believe this gives children the right to vote? But it doesn't deny us the right, Elizabeth. That's my point. Oh, Susan, Susan, you're beating your head against the wall. No, no, I have an idea. I mean to prove my point. Prove it. The presidential election is being held this year. I am going to Rochester and vote. No. Oh, I can't let you do that. I must. It's my duty as a citizen. Neither you nor anyone else has a right to stop me. Don't you see? That's the very point I mean to prove.
in the election of 1872 in Rochester, New York, Susan Anthony did cast her vote. She was immediately arrested for fraudulent voting and given a public trial. The result was foreordained, but the trial itself attracted nationwide publicity. Before sentencing, she was interviewed by the judge in his chambers. Now, Miss Anthony, I know what an ordeal this has been for you, but I want you to understand what I must do. Yes, Your Honor. The law carries with it penalties. The violation you have committed calls for a jail sentence, a fine of $100, or both. And as you know, I must impose the sentence. And as you must know, Your Honor, I must decline to accept it. Decline? Well, my good woman, you can't decline a sentence. Well, nevertheless, I have no intention of paying a fine of $100. <laughs> I suppose if I am bodily thrown into prison, I have little choice in the matter. But I can tell you this with all due respect. I shall never voluntarily walk into prison for the commission of an act which I steadfastly refuse to believe is a crime. It is obvious to me that you intend, madam, to make a martyr of yourself. If that becomes necessary, yes, sir. I can only repeat that I do not propose to pay the fine. Nor did she pay the fine. And strangely enough, she never served a day in jail. But her act dramatized her cause and put it uppermost in the minds of thinking people throughout the land. In the years that followed, she redoubled her efforts until her very name became a byword in most American homes. So quickly was the climate of public opinion changing that by 1890, the Washington Star could proudly proclaim her the most remarkable woman in the world. At last, in 1900, at the age of 80... She resigned the presidency of the National Women's Suffrage Association. And at the convention held in February of that year, Dr. Anna Howard Shaw paid her a last glowing tribute. A little over a hundred years ago, there came men who told us what freedom is and what freedom may become. Later, women with the same love of it in their hearts said, There is no sex in freedom. Whatever it makes possible for men, it will make possible for women. A few of these daring souls went forth to blaze the path. Elizabeth Stanton and Susan Anthony still stand on the summit, great, glorious figures. Souls like theirs can never rest in all the eternities of God. She did not live to see her own final triumph. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution was not ratified until 13 years after her death. But Susan B. Anthony had done her work well. The amendment was ratified because, at long last, it had become politically expedient. You have been listening to Inheritance. Presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with the American Legion.
Next week, Inheritance will take you on another journey through the pages of American history. Today's story was written by Gilbert Braun. Featured in the cast were Anne Seymour, Virginia Payne, Lola Pizer, and youth Ruth York. Also heard with Dick Hamilton, Joseph Bell, Charles Webster, Sam Gray, and John Larkin. Uh, this is Roger Bowman speaking. Inheritance was produced by William Welch and directed by Daniel Sutter. This has been an NBC Radio Network production. Tonight, hear Cavalcade of Stars on the NBC Radio Network. Their rights and nothing less. The story of Susan B. Anthony from the American Legion NBC collaboration Inheritance during the first week of spring in 1955. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. The playwright and producer Arch Obler must have been the most prolific man in America during World War II. Or, at a minimum, he and his counterpart Norman Corwin together were the two most prolific men in America. How Mr. Obler managed to write and produce all his patriotic radio shows and movie scripts while continuing to turn out episodes of the hit horror series Lights Out, well, it's a wonder. And it's not just that he did it all. He did it all really well. And we've got a good example for you tonight. In keeping with our observance of National Radio Day this coming week, it's a radio play about some people in radio Two young women, to be precise, who are, well, nowadays you might call them keyboardists. But back then they were typists, and they were preparing what were called mimeograph stencils, crucial to duplicating the scripts for radio shows. There's some great inside jokes about Mr. Obler himself, and a reference to one of the most famous Lights Out episodes, The Dark, in which a mysterious fog literally turns its victims inside out. Nothing quite that gruesome happens in this episode, but it's plenty scary. It's called Murder in the Script Department, and it comes from May 11th, 1943, CBS, and Lights Out. Arch Obler's Lights Out, everybody. It is later. Arch Obler bringing you another in our series of stories of the unusual. And once again, we caution you. These lights out stories are definitely not for the timid soul. So we tell you calmly and very sincerely, if you frighten easily, turn off your radio now. Oh, what time is it? Ten minutes more. Gee, it's been a long day, hasn't it? I'll say so. If I never see another script or typewriter, it'll be too soon. <laughs> you were the one who wanted to get into radio. Radio. Sitting at a typewriter eight hours a day, making stencils. You were the one who said it'd be a shortcut. Some director would walk into the script department, see you behind that typewriter, and say, where you been all my life? Mary, stop it, will you? You think you're so cute. I don't see anyone whining. Bernice, Mary, 
After all, this is a place of business. Yes, ma'am. I don't like to be the disciplinarian, but this is the third time that I've found you quarreling with each other rather than working. Well, we weren't quarreling. Perhaps not, but it sounded like it. You're setting a very unfortunate example for the other girls. I'm going to ask both of you a simple question. Do you or do you not want to continue working here? Well, we do. Yes, of course we do. Very well. No more of this nonsense, then. There's a script that must be mimeographed first thing tomorrow morning, so the stencils will have to be out tonight. It shouldn't take you long. What's the matter with you girls? Have you any objections to working late tonight? Oh, no. no I'd love it. Very well. All right. The rest of you girls, time to go home. Yes, I'd love to stay over time if I could type over her dead body. Hush, hush. She'll hear you. Here's your script, girls. Twenty pages. Divide it up between yourselves. Yes, ma'am. When you're through, leave the stencils on my desk and lock the door behind you. Yes, ma'am. Well, good night. Don't forget to turn out the lights as you go. Yes, ma'am. All right, girls. Let's get out of here quickly so the Bernice and Mary can finish their work. Come on, Miss Young. Of all the knock-kneed, blab-eared, long-necked pot Oh, stop it, will you? Let's oh. type the darn thing off and get out of here. <sighs> well, what do you know? What's the matter? Look at the script we're supposed to type. Lights out. <laughs> One of those things. Yeah. So what? I... I don't like to type them. They scare me. Are you kidding? Typing's typing, no matter what you're typing. Not if it's one of those lights out plays. Blood and people dying and murderers and worms. Oosh. Forget it. Just words on paper. That scares me. Mm, type with your eyes closed. Huh. Here, listen to this. Note to the sound department. At this point in the play, I want the sound of a body being turned inside out. I suggest the use of a wet rubber glove to plant the picture of a human being being deliberately turned. Oh, stop it, will you? <laughs> For please sake. It's only a sound effect. I was just reading. Oh, will you type your script and let me type this? Don't go reading any of it out loud. All right, all right. I wonder what kind of a screwball he is. Who? The fellow who writes these plays, you know. Arch Oberlin? Yeah. Oh, I like him. What are you talking about? You never even met him. Well, I like him anyway. But you just finished saying you don't like this. I like his other plays. You know, the ones he does for the government? We're sent to them. Well, personally, I think he's a wolf. What are you talking about? You know, one of these werewolves. I bet he eats his young. Well, don't talk like that. He's got a ten-month-old baby. I saw a picture of it. And it's real cute. Well, I still think... Well, for heaven's sake, just because the man writes fantastic doesn't mean he's fantastic. Well, you look who's talking. Why, you're even afraid to type him. What are you afraid of, that the ghost will pop out of the pages and turn you inside oh, out? Oh, stop it, will you, if you don't stop it? All right, all right, let's type. Well, how do you like that? What's the matter now? My typewriter's jammed. Can't move a key. B? What's the matter with you? Mine is, too. <laughs> My typewriter is, too. Like the fella said, say Laguerre, everything's falling apart. Well, we'll have to use one of the other machines. Just when I was getting comfortable. I'll use Anita's. Yeah, I'm going to use Evelyn's. She won't care what I do with it. She's going to be a wave anyway. Mary, this one's jammed, too. Yeah, so is Evelyn's. I'll try Elle's machine. She's always boasting about how fast it is. Why, it's jammed, too. Well, so is this one. Well, what do you know? <laughs> what is it, the typewriter gremlin? Mary, what's the matter? Your face. Let's get out of here. What's the matter? Let's get out of here. We've got overtime. I tell you, let's go home. Well, just because a typewriter jams up is no reason to have a fit. Well, I'm getting out of here, and you better come with me. You're crazy running out. What's come over you? What? Bernice. What's the matter with you now? What are you standing at the door with your back to me for? Stay or go. Bernice, come here quick. Oh, for Pete's sake. What's the matter with you? Why are you standing there for with your hand on the knob? It's locked. What? Locked. Locked. Oh, you are crazy. Let me add it. Let me try. Why is it locked? Because some screwball janitor thought everybody would left and locked the door, that's all. Say, somebody out there. Let us out of here. We're locked. 
Jim, hey. It, it won't do any good. That's what you say. I'll wake the dead. Hey, are you deep or dead or whatever it is? Somebody get a key and let us out. Hey, we're not slave labor. Let us out. What's the matter with me? Where are you going? All I've got to do is pick up the telephone and call communications. They'll get us out of here. Oh, yes. Call them right away. Tell them we're all locked. All right, all right. I'm calling them. Hello. Hello. Answer me. What's the matter? Oh, I'm dead. Oh. Stop that. The operator thought we'd all gone home, so she disconnected the wire. That's all. Oh, oh for Pete's sake, of all the nincompoops, what is there to cry about? Oh, I'm afraid. So you're afraid, so I'm Queen of the May and there are roses in the air. What is this all about? What's all the hysteria? You don't understand. Don't say I don't. You stop crying. No, something terrible is going to happen. What are you talking about? We're in the script department of a broadcasting company, remember? Well, something jammed the typewriters. Something locked the door. Something... What do you mean, something? Something, I tell you. I, I tell you, you're crazy. I think I've known you all these weeks and never knew you had bats in your belfry. There's absolutely nothing that's happened. Why did you stop talking? Answer me. Telephone cord. Oh. The end. It's torn off. Yes. But I... I talked on this telephone only an hour ago, remember? Yes. I could have gotten torn loose. I told you. Shut up. All right, maybe there is something screwy. I don't know. But I do know there's nothing to get hysterical about. This place only had windows I could call out. On modernistic air conditioning. Will you stop moaning? Well, you're scared too. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Series of coincidences, that's all. What could it be? Answer me what? Who ever heard of anything happening in a place like this? Well, what are you looking at me like that for? This is no haunted house. You and me and a lot of other girls work here, remember? So if we're locked in and have to stay here all night, so what? The door's locked from the outside. The watchman downstairs, remember? So who could get in here to hurt us? What if the locked door won't do any good? What? You heard me. Oh, you're a crazy kid. Look, desks and chairs, fluorescent light... Modern design, remember? We're not in a haunted house. Get that through your head. We're not in a haunted house. Oh. Well, what's the matter now? Get all through explaining. What's the matter? Something happened. Happened? Something in the air. What are you... Oh, for heaven. Over there at the end of the room. The light must have burned out. Oh, oh I was right. Just to show you how crazy you've been. A couple of natural things happen and you start acting out a ghost story. You should join the actors' union. Please. Well, one of the lights burned out. So what? There's one thing the script department's got. Plenty of light. Mary, why are you... Another light. I saw it go out. Are you dreaming? I tell you, I saw it go out. You're crazy. It did. I saw it. Now, look here. There are two, four, six, eight... Eight lights in this place. See? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now, don't give me any more of that lights out. Another. Oh, Another. You're absolutely crazy. I'm scared just staying here with you. Count them. Why should I? Count them. One, two, three, four, five, seven. Not eight. Seven. Gee. I told you. Oh, no. What? Another one out. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop it. Stop it. Another one there. Go. Over next to Miss Winton's desk. Another one. What? Only four left. Only four. What'll we do? Only four. Who's putting them out? I don't know. I don't. Another. Oh. Three more. If they go out, I'll die. They won't go out. They can't go out. The switch. That's it. I'll hold the switch. I won't turn out the lights if I hold the switch. It's all right, Mary. See? I got hold of the switch. Nothing. Another can... one. Another one. But I was holding on to the switch. Too light. 
Two lights in the dark. Bernice. Oh, Bernice, hold me. I'm scared. Oh, gee, I'm scared. It's all right. There's still two lights. Two lights. They'll stay on. They will. I know they will. They're both out. We're in the dark, Bernice. Where are you? Let me out of here. I'm afraid of the dark. Stop it, stop it. Isn't it bad enough without you driving me crazy? What's the good of your crying? There's a reason. There must be for this. Everything's got a reason. I know it. I know it. I can't stand it. I can't. I can't. Those blackout candles. Stop crying and let me think. Miss Whitten had some blackout candles in her desk. I know she did. Oh, don't leave me alone. Don't leave me in the dark, Bernice. Will you stop it? I found them. Candles, matches. There. Three candles like this one. And this one. See? Plenty of light now. Who's there? Nobody. Nobody. There's a reason for everything, I tell you. I know what it is. What? The electricians, that's it. The electricians didn't know we were up here, and they were testing the lights. They'll go on any minute. Wait and see. You think so? Of course. Look, what did I tell you? <laughs> there they go on again. Look at the ceiling. Oh, oh no. Green. Light. Now. It's green. Green. All the lights. Green. You lied to me. You said it was the electrician. Look at the light. It's green. It makes your face look green. You look dead. You hear me? Dead. You'll be dead and I'll be dead. We'll be dead. Stop it. Stop it. You're not going to drive me crazy. Just because there's something wrong with the electricity. You look around. Everything's all right. Nothing's wrong here. Nothing. Is that typing? I heard typing. Those eyes. I think we just must have imagined. <laughs> typewriter. Look at the typewriter. Typing. And there's no one. Who's typing? Who's typing? I... I... I'm so tired. Me too. I wonder if it's day. I don't know. I don't think so. Sooner or later, someone will come along. It'll be too late. Don't say that. Nothing's happened these last hours, has it? Nothing. It will. When I get out of here, I never want to talk to you as long as I live. As long as you live. Stop talking like that, or do I have... Don't hurt me. I'm not hurting you. No one's going to hurt you. Or me. Trick. It's some kind of a trick. The typewriters. Electric ones, aren't they? Power. Something. It's got to be a trick. You don't believe it, do you? Believe what? There's something in this room with us. Where? I don't know. But it's here. What are you trying to do? Make me scared as you are scared? There's something in this room. Where? Anthony, where? Just you and me, that's all. You're not going to scare me. I'm not going to let myself get scared anymore. I want to get out of here, and I'm going to get out of here. My head's done. Yes. I heard it, too. Look. 
Mm, the sun is very nice. I think I'm getting that scared now myself. You hear something? What? Something? There's nothing, nothing. No, there is something. I told you. Listen to me. Who's here with us? Who? Answer me. What do you want of us? Please answer me. What do you want of us? When you sleep, you don't think. I'm not going to think anymore. If I think about it, get like Mary is. No one will think. Sit here till the morning with my eyes shut. And when it's morning, we'll get here. I'll be all right. I'll be all right. My eyes closed. Green light still shines through my lids. How could green light turn with... No, stop thinking. Gotta stop thinking. Light through my lids. Ah, no light. Open my eyes. Dark. The lights are gone. It was dark again. Mary. Mary, wake up. Mary, the light. Please wake up. I'm not asleep. Oh. I thought. Sun is very nice. Isn't it? The sun. You still think... Mary, don't you know? Can't you see we're sitting in the dark? Dark. Stay close to me. If day's only come. I know. He'll be here soon. Who? In the dark. He'll be here. Who are you talking about? Who? Any minute now. Do you hear him? Here? I think he's coming now. Yes. He is. No, please, no. You're right. It is dark. Very dark. His kind of dark. Stop talking like that. You can't stop him. No one can stop him. What's the use of being afraid? If someone had only come. I've been telling you. Someone is coming. Right now. And he's sitting on the desk looking at it. I'm glad he's here. He'll make my head stop hurting. He'll take me home. The floor. It's lifting. Yes. I feel it. The room. It's turning. Stop this. Stop turning the room. Let me out of here. Let me out of here. Axis planes shot down in the Mediterranean theater of war. So much for the war news. Now the news of local interest to you early morning listeners. If you've been wondering why those dishes in the kitchen started to dance last night, 
The answer is an earth trembler. Earthquake to you of five seconds duration. The material damage was very slight, but two deaths are indirectly attributed to the earthquake. Bernice Saxton and Mirabelle Pressler, employed by the broadcasting company, were found dead this morning in the script department where they've been doing overtime work. Cause of the deaths is believed to have been heart failure induced by fright. The girls have been accidentally locked in the office, and when there was a failure of electric power followed by earthquake, it is believed the young women were frightened to death. This concludes our morning broadcast. Time spring of 1943, Murder in the Script Department from Arch Obler's series Lights Out and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We're honoring radio itself tonight with National Radio Day less than 48 hours away and we're going to highlight ham radio, that fascinating realm of hobbyists, competitors, and people who are just interested on the most intimate level in using radio for its capital function, direct human communication. Amateur radio is still around, and it's still quite useful. It can be a significant element in communicating during emergencies, though they're seldom as dramatic as in the little radio play we're about to hear. It stars the decorated actress Claire Trevor, and it comes from the U.S. Treasury-sponsored program Guest Star. From January 21st, 1951, here's an excerpt called Where Are the Bullets? from the syndicated series Guest Star. And now, friends, our special guest. She's been a favorite of yours and mine for many years, not only for her work in motion pictures, but also for her splendid work on radio. She has featured in a specially written sketch, Where Are the Bullets? We take you now to Hollywood for Miss Claire Trevor. My name is Mary Hamilton. My husband, Don, and I live in a lonely cabin in the hills of northern Montana. Through our amateur radio station, we talk with friends all over the world. With one exception, we've never been able to contact our best friend, Harvey Butler. He lives in Sydney, Australia. One night, was storming very badly. W12CT calling VK10... PCB, Sydney, Australia. W12CT, calling VK10PCB, Sydney, Australia. Come in, Harvey. Oh, I give up. No luck again. Don, why can't we pick him up? Well, maybe it's the iron in these mountains, huh? Well, we can get New Zealand, South Africa, but Sydney, Australia, no. Well, when I get back from Denver, I'll rig a higher antenna. And don't forget, I'm staying with Charlie Middleton. Now, you can talk to me every night. Mm-hmm. You know his call letters, W-L-R-L-X. Yes, I'll call every ham in Denver so I can keep tab on my old man. <laughs> hey, hey, none of that, none of that. <laughs> Come on, help me finish packing this suitcase, will you? Yes, yeah, sure. Oh, give Charlie my best, darling, will you? You know I'm going to miss you? I bet I miss you more. <laughs> oh, shut up, Rover. Look, try calling Charlie around midnight, huh? Mm-hmm. I'll be there in time to talk with you if this snowstorm doesn't ground all planes. 
What was that radio report? Oh, weather's not too good. Oh, Don, there was also a prison break. What? Yes, a break at state prison. That's where Vincent Stone is. Hey, I don't like it. Oh, here's Clem for you now. Now, you run along, darling, and please don't worry. Don't worry. Your testimony put that killer in prison. He said he'd get you if he ever got out. No, no, no. I'd better not go, huh? Oh, fiddlesticks. There's one chance in a million. So go along now and have fun. But don't forget you're married. Hello? Good evening, Mrs. Hamilton. Sorry to alarm you, but I just want to tell you there was a prison break and Vincent Stone is at large. Oh, no. We've got a posse out now and we're trying to... Hello? Yes, Sergeant? Hello? Hello? Hello, Sergeant? Operator? Operator? Hello? Hello? Uh, It's dead. The phone's dead. You hear that, Rover? Something's wrong with that telephone line. I'd better take a look down the trail. Oh, brother. No wonder the phone's dead. What a blizzard. Now, you stay here, Rover, and keep watch, will you? I'm going upstairs to call Denver. W-12-C-T. Calling W-11-R-L-X Denver. I've been calling you for the last half hour. W-11-R-L-X. 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 Come in, please. W-11-R-L-X. Hello, Mary. Hello. Hello, Mary. This is Don. I just got here. Are you all right? Answer. Don, Vincent Stone did break out. The phone is dead. The line is down. It's blowing such a blizzard nobody can get here. Don, what will I do? Mary, don't take any chances. Don't go downstairs. Do not go downstairs. Do you understand? Yes, Don, I understand. I won't go downstairs. Don. Don Rover is barking at something. There's someone coming up the trail. It... Maybe it's Stone. I know it is. He's coming to kill me. What'll I do? Mary, Mary, can you hear me? Barricade the door of the radio room. Barricade the door. Push the table against the chairs, boxes, anything. Mary, get my revolver. Get the revolver in the pocket of my gray coat on the wall right by you. Revolver in gray coat, do you hear me? Yes. Yes, in the gray coat... I just heard a window break. Don, he's in the house. Stand by while I bar the door. Keep talking to me. For God's sake, keep talking. Mary, Mary, pile everything against that door. Keep him out until I can get help to you. Charlie is calling help on his 40-meter rig. Mary, Mary, are you there? Yes, Don, yes. I piled everything I could move in front of the door. Don! He's coming up the stairs. Come on, open up. Open that door. Don, I know his voice. It's Vincent Stone. He's trying to break in the door. I have the revolver, but it's empty. Where are the bullets? 
Where are the bullets? The bullets are... The bullets are in... I know you're in there. Open it up. Open it up. Don, I can't hear you. Where are the bullets? Oh, please, Don, he's breaking in. Increase your power. Do something, but get through and tell me. Where are the bullets? Mary, the bullets. Cabinet. Oh, please. Please, CQ, CQ, CQ. Somebody cut in and tell me what he said. What did he say? Calling W12CT. The bullets are in red tin box. Top drawer of filing cabinet. Good luck. Oh, thank you. Thank you, whoever you are. Stay with me, please. I told you I'd kill you. Now... Sweetheart, I'm never going to leave you alone again. I have to thank that quick-thinking hand for saving your life. Yes. Who was it? Darling, you'll never believe this. Do you know who it was? No. It was Harvey Butler in Sydney, Australia. Thanks, Claire Trevor, for a fine performance. But believe me, you had me a little worried there until you found those bullets. Maybe you think I wasn't worried. I'm beginning to think a ham radio outfit's a pretty handy thing to have around the house. Me too. In fact, I think I'll pick one up on the way home just for my own protection. Good idea, Rod. Oscar and Emmy winner Claire Trevor saving her own fictitious life in the short play Where Are the Bullets? from guest star in the winter of 1951. Part of our tribute to ham radio on the occasion of National Radio Day this coming Tuesday. It's the big broadcast. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey. Our audio engineer is Douglas Bell. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. Another admirer of amateur radio enthusiasts and their ability to save real lives was perhaps the greatest radio creator of them all, Orson Welles. We'll hear him and his Mercury Theatre colleagues, including Joseph Cotton, in one of their best productions. At the end of this show, Mr. Welles praises ham radio and its importance in critical situations. It's something amateur radio still possesses in this era of smartphones, Wi-Fi, and social media. My friend Ron Feynman, also known as Call W3GIS, tells me that there are over three-quarters of a million licensed hams in the U.S. today, and in addition to cultivating an international network of friends, they're crucial in emergencies. Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico is a recent example when ham radio provided the only communications links for some three weeks. Ron has graciously provided a wonderful summary of the history and power of amateur radio, and you'll find it on our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. Orson Welles understood that power, and you'll hear his appreciation of ham radio at the end of this broadcast. From January 13, 1939, and CBS, here are 23-year-old Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre Players in 
Mutiny on the Bounty, on the Campbell Playhouse. The makers of Campbell Soups present the Campbell Playhouse, Orson Welles' producer. Listeners, this is Ernest Chappell speaking. Tonight, the Campbell Playhouse presents Orson Welles in his own radio version of that great sea story, Mutiny on the Bounty. Good evening, this is Orson Welles. On the 12th of September, 1792, there occurred in England the most remarkable court martial in maritime history. Seven naval officers and men were on trial for their lives before the Lord's Commissioner of the Admiralty on charge of high treason. Revelations at this trial of conditions prevailing on the ships of the British Navy came finally to exert a powerful influence in humanizing the administration of the world's navies and making more tolerable life at sea. Seaman. Yes, sir. John Mills, Seaman. Yes, sir. Thomas Ellison, Seaman. Yes, sir. You are here to be tried by a special court of naval inquiry assembled aboard His Majesty's flagship Duke under Article 19 of the Naval Articles of War, which read as follows. If any person in or belonging to the fleet shall make or endeavor to make any mutinous assembly upon any pretense whatsoever, every person offending herein being convicted thereof by the sentence of the court-martial, shall suffer death. First witness of the Crown, Captain Bly. Captain Bly! Yes, my lord. Captain Bly, have you any statement to make to this court concerning the mutiny aboard His Majesty's ship, Bounty, while under your command in the Great South Seas? I have, sir. I have prepared a statement which I now beg the court's permission to read. The court will hear your statement, Captain Blythe. I respectfully beg to submit to the Lord's Commissioner of the Admiralty the information that His Majesty's armed vessel Bounty, under my command, was taken from me by some of the superior officers and men on the 28th day of April 1789 in the following manner. A little before sunrise, Fletcher Christian, who was mate of the ship and officer of the watch, together with the accused and certain others of the crew, came into my cabin and while I was asleep seized me in my bed and with cutlasses and bayonets fixed at my breast threatened me with instant death if I spoke or made the least noise. I was hauled on deck in my shirt and without a rag else. The bosun was ordered to hoist the launch out and the officers and men who remained loyal were ordered into the boat. We then veered astern, all 19 souls. The boat was so lumbered and deep in the water that it was believed we should never reach shore. The size of the boat was 23 feet from stem to stern, rowed six oars. After considering our melancholy situation, I was earnestly solicited by all hands to take them toward home. Therefore, 
After commending our souls to God, I bore away for New Holland and two more across the sea, but little known, in a small boat laden with 19 souls, without a single map of any kind, and nothing but my own recollection and general knowledge of the situation of places to direct us. After enduring dangers and privations impossible to describe, we sighted Timor on the 12th of June, and on the morning of the 15th before daylight, I anchored under the fort of the Dutch settlement at Kupang. This voyage, in an open boat, I believe to be unparalleled in the history of navigation. One thing I wish to add, that on the night preceding the mutiny, coming up on deck during the middle watch, according to my custom, I discovered Fletcher Christian, the ringleader of the mutineers, in earnest conversation with Roger Byam, Mitchell, one of the accused. In the darkness of the deck, I was not observed by these men who were standing on the starboard side of the quarter deck between the guns. Nor had I any apprehension at that time that their conversation was not innocent. But as I approached unseen, I saw Roger Byam shake hands with Christian. And I distinctly heard him say these words. You can count on me, to which Christian replied, Good, that's settled then. The moment they discovered me, they broke off their talk. I have not the slightest doubt that this conversation concerned the forthcoming mutiny. It's all, my lord. Roger Byam, stand forth. Roger Byam, you have been accused with others of mutinous and piratical seizure of His Majesty's armed vessel Bounty. You have heard the Crown's witness. Roger Byam, do you plead guilty or not guilty? My lord and gentlemen, I declare before God and the members of this court that I'm innocent. That I have never been guilty either in thought or in deed of the crime of which I'm charged. Roger Byam, the court is now ready to receive whatever you may have to say in your own defense. My lords, I joined His Majesty's armed transport bounty as a midshipman on the 21st of December, 1787. We were off Spithead, lying to for stores and crews to come aboard. I remember my first sight of the bounty. The crew crowd, crowded in the afterdeck around the huddled form of a man, lashed to the captain's bar, and Captain Bly reading from an admiralty order. If any person in or belonging to His Majesty's fleet shall strike or endeavor to strike an officer, he shall be flogged in turn on board every ship of the fleet. Master Downs? Yes, sir. How many lashes are due from our ship? Two dozen, sir. Very well. Mr. Morrison? Yes, Captain Bly. Two dozen lashes. One moment, Captain. Yes, surgeon. Prisoner is dead, sir. Lucky devil, we were only the fifth ship. Well, Mr. Morrison, what are you waiting for? But, but the man is dead, sir. Yes, I heard the surgeon's report. God, my dinner's getting cold. Two dozen lashes, Mr. Morrison. Two dozen lashes, dead or alive. Two dozen it is, sir. December, with 45 officers and crew aboard, and as the guns of the fleet fired a farewell salute, the bounty set sail for Tahiti and the Great South Seas. Lieutenant Christian. Aye, Captain Bly. Take charge, raising anchor, sir. Very well, sir. Spryer, top zone. Aye, sir. Burzo. Aye, sir. Sinclair. Aye, sir. 
Surgeon Hogan. At your service, sir. Surgeon Hogan, you'll moderate both your voice and your rum rations. At your post. Very well, sir. To Morrison, we're ready, sir. Aye, sir. All hands out or down here. Flash and carry. transportation of breadfruit trees from the island of Tahiti to the West Indian plantations. Thus, the ship's quarters were more than usually crowded, a circumstance which undoubtedly affected the temper of its company. The officers messed in a screened-off space on the lower deck, after the main hatch. At the captain's table sat Mr. Fryer, the ship's navigator, an elderly man long in the service of His Majesty's Navy, and Mr. Christian, the mate. A man of only 24, of fine presence, from a good English family. Don't you talk to me about seamen, Mr. Christian. I know them better than you, curse them. A lazy, incompetent lot of scoundrels. Heaven knows the captain has trials enough with such crew. Dregs of public houses. They don't know a sheet from a tack. I venture to differ with you, Captain Bly. I should call Ellison and Mills first-class seamen. Even Burkett. Though he may be willful. Willful, eh? Burkett's an insolent hound. I have my eye on him. Slightest report of misconduct, I'll have him seized up and flogged. If I may express an opinion, Captain Bly. Yes, Mr. Christian. Burkett's a man to tame with kindness rather than with blows. La dee da, Mr. Christian. On my word, you should apply for a place as master in the young lady's seminary. Kindness, indeed. A fine captain you'll make with such ridiculous notions. Our seamen understand kindness as well as they understand Greek. Fears what they do understand. Without fear, mutiny and piracy would be rife on the high seas. Aye, there's some truth in that, sir. I can't agree. Seamen don't differ from other Englishmen. There are some, the best of them, who follow a fair and kind officer to the ends of the earth. Rot. So as I trust them, it's the end of a yard arm. If you have to talk such nonsense, Mr. Christian, don't do it in my mess where I have to listen to you. Very well, Mr. Blind. In the future, I shall dine where my opinions are more acceptable. From that day on, and for the rest of the voyage, Captain Bly took his meals by himself in his cabin. In latitude 39 degrees north, just off the coast of Tenerife, we ran into heavy weather. A huge wave stove in three of our longboats, carried away our cases of beef, and spoiled a large part of our stock of bread. We laid into Santa Cruz for fresh supplies of water and beef, 
The meat that was taken on ship was so tainted the men threw most of it overboard. Captain Bly kept the men at work, repairing the ship's boats from morning till night. Captain Bly? Yes, Mr. Fryer. Men are asking when they can start shore leave, sir. So they can get drunk in the taverns, I suppose. Been at sea nearly eight weeks, sir. Maybe eight months before they set foot in land, and might as well get used to it. No shore leaves, Mr. Fryer. Aye, sir. We left Santa Cruz at the end of February. We carried no purser. Bly filled the office himself, assisted by Samuel, his clerk, a smug, tight-lipped little man who was believed to be the captain's spy. On Monday of every week, he and Captain Bly opened up the casks and checked over the supplies in the storeroom. Eighteen pounds, salt beef. Eighteen pounds, sir. What's uh, wrong with that cake, Burgess? Seems like it's been open, sir. Oh, so it has. Mr. Fryer, come here at once, sir. Mr. Fryer, Captain Bly calling you, sir. Yes, Captain? One of these casks has been opened and two cheeses are missing. Well, they may have been short-weighted when we were provisioned, sir. They were not, Mr. Fryer. I checked them. These cheeses were stolen. Well, perhaps you'll recollect, sir, that while we were at Spithead, a cask was opened by your order and the cheeses carried ashore. Hold your tongue, Burkett! Vote his men by a pack of thieves. Surely, Captain, you don't think that I... You're all in collusion against me, officers and men. But I'll tame you by heaven, I will. I'll make you eat grass before I'm done with you. Samuel. Yes, sir? Is the allowance of cheese stopped? The officers, too, mind you, until the deficiency is made good. Yes, Captain. And Burkett, if I hear another word out of you, I'll have you seized up and flogged to the bone. Samuel, you'll flog the storeroom. Bring the keys to my cabin. Uh, so help me. Bly ordered those two cheeses taken out at Spithead. I can back you there, Burkett. I carried them myself. Two cheeses and a cask of vinegar at Bly's house. So that's the game, is it? Lining his pockets by starving us. Curses blood. I'll be hanged if I do any more work on this ship. He puts back our cheese rifles. I'm with you, lads. No more work by any in this mess. And I'll give the word to Quintle's mess, and he'll pass it on. No more work. 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 Colonel? Captain Bly. Yes, Mr. Christian. As officer of the deck, sir, I feel it my duty to make a report. Well, what is it? The grumbling in the forecastle, sir. It's becoming serious. Ah, is it? What are the scoundrels grumbling about now? Many things, sir. Chiefly the food. Well, they're not satisfied with the rations, sir. By heaven, they'd better make up their minds to be satisfied. Captain Bly, a second officer. I'm in a measure responsible for their conduct. If I may suggest, sir, I... I think it would be wise to listen to their grievances. You may keep your suggestions to yourself, Mr. Christian. I think it only right that you should hear what the... I mean. am the only judge, sir, of what's right and wrong on the ship. I'm tired of their bloody complaints. Since you seem to be their advocate, Mr. Christian, you can tell them this. The first man to complain from now on will be placed in chains. <laughs> About a hundred leagues off the coast of Brazil, the wind chopped around to north and northwest, and the bounty lay becalmed. Here, another incident occurred to aggravate the resentment of the men. We'd been at sea six months, 
And for ten weeks now, outside of the officer's mess, there had been no fresh food of any sort on board the bounty. Taking advantage of the calm, the crew employed themselves with fishing for shark, with pieces of rotten pork for bait. Shark's meat. You hear, men? Not a scrap. A fine catch, eh, man? I say it's a fine catch of fish you got there. I must have a slice, eh, Mr. Burkish? Oh, you must have a slice, Mr. Samuel. I must have a glass of grog and a sip one, too. If you eat shark today. Come, come, my good man. You have enough fish there for a dozen. You have enough grog stored away for a thousand, by heaven. It's for the captain's table I want it. Catch him a shark yourself. This is mine. He gets the best of the bread and the pick of the junk cask as it is. Forget you yourself, Brickett. Come. Give me a slice. That large one and I'll say nothing. Devil with you. You take your slice right in your sneaking face. Brickett spent the night in irons. His messmates saved in their entire allowance of grog to fortify him against the flogging they knew to be inevitable. At six bells, Mr. Bly came on deck. Christian? Yes, Captain Bly? Call all hands on deck to witness punishment. Yes, sir. All men on aft deck, Boston. I have a secretary. All hands out on deck! All hands! All hands, sir! All hands! I report all men on deck, Captain Bly. Very good, Mr. Christian. Break the gratings, Mr. Purcell. The gratings are very Thomas Burkett, step forward. Anything said? No, sir. Strip! Norton, seize him up. Seized up, sir. Thomas Burkett, for mutinous conduct, I sentence you to three dozen lashes. Morrison. Yes, sir. Mr. Morrison, see that you lay on with a will. Port me at breakfast when you're done. Yes, sir. What are you saying, Mills? We gotta get back to England, don't we? We could get back without Bly if we had to. There's a man that could take the body home. I and a better man than Bly. Christian, you mean? Christian. Yeah, that's right. Mr. Christian. Mr. Christian. 
fortunately for Captain Bly. A gale blew up that night, and all hands were kept busy keeping the ship from being swamped. Day after day, we scudded before strong westerly to southwesterly winds, carrying only the foresail and close reefed main topsail. At last, on the 20th of November, we rounded Cape Horn. Five weeks later, we sighted the first coral reefs and saw the great mountains of the island of Tahiti. Yes, sir. Taking sounding. Yes, sir. Mills? By the Mark 8, by the deep seven waters showing. Bear anchor. Yes, sir. Morrison? All men to their stations. All men to their stations. Well, there it is, Mr. Christian. The Isle of Tahiti. Long, hard voyage. By heaven, there it is at last. Looks like a beautiful island, Captain Bly. It is. Captain Cook, under whom I sailed these waters, loved it. Only next to England. Were I an old man and my work done, I should ask nothing better than to end my days under its palms. Mr. Christian. Yes, sir. Sounding. Mills. By the deep five, one half left five, sir, and shawling fast. Lower away. Lower away there. Christian. Yes, sir. Set a watch. See that those thieving yellow devils don't steal anything when they come aboard. The next day, the crew went ashore. The danger of the mutiny seemed past. The hardships of the voyage were soon forgotten. We lived on the fat of the land, amongst affectionate native friends. Those were the happiest weeks I ever spent. Our host was the chief of the island. He had two daughters, Hina and Tahani. Mr. Christian and I used to visit them often. The four of us would go swimming, sporting in the breakers or lying on the white sand of the coral beach. Tina. Yes, Byam. The tide is high. Swim with me out to the reef underwater. How about it, Christian? Oh, Byam, you're not lazy enough for the South Seas. I'll stay here with the honey. Ready, Hina? Ready. Come. You swim like I'll show you when we get to the reef. <laughs>
that time is a long lizard that sleeps with its tail in its mouth. And to those who keep their hearts within its circle, no harm can come. No harm will come, darling. What are you doing with those flowers? They honey make a wreath to go around your neck. White flower, long stem. What do you call it? This one? The Tafano. Looks like the lotus. In my country, we have legends too, Tiani. In my country, they say a sailor who once tastes the lotus never goes home. listening to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Mutiny on the Bounty. We pause now for station identification. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Ernest Chappell welcoming you back to the Campbell Playhouse. In a minute or two, we will resume our presentation of Mutiny on the Bounty, starring Orson Welles. Meanwhile, may I say a word or two about mutiny in another form? Over many years, modern genius has been showing women the way to give their families better food with less kitchen time. And call it mutiny or call it evolution, women have been quick to take full advantage of these benefits for their families and themselves. No longer does the good housewife feel she must spend long hours each week making her own bread and churning her own butter. To give her family their favorite dishes, it is no longer necessary to spend so many hours in her kitchen. Her household shelves are laden down with many of these foods, ready prepared for her and of a quality equal to her own good homemade kind. Among these fine foods are soups, Campbell soups. If you have never tried them, I invite you to try a can of Campbell's chicken soup tomorrow. I cannot think of a finer way to introduce you to Campbell's soups than that. Once you've tasted Campbell's chicken soup, I feel certain you'll be convinced that soup making at home is a task you can well turn over to Campbell's chefs. And now, back to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Mutiny on the Bounty, starring Orson Welles. Roger Byam, midshipman. Yes, sir. James Morrison, boatswain's mate. Yes, sir. William Purcell, ship's carpenter. Yes, sir. Thomas Burkitt, seaman. Yes, sir. John Mill, seaman. Yes, sir. Thomas Ellison, seaman. Yes, sir. Roger Byam, have you anything further to say in your defense? I have, my lord. Toward the end of March, it became evident to all hands that the bounty would soon sail. More than a thousand young breadfruit trees in pots and tubs had been taken on board. The relaxation of discipline now came to an end. Captain Bly ordered Samuel to seize all the gifts which the friendly natives had given the men. With abundance around them, the crew were again put on slender rations. Two of them, deserted to the hills, were caught and severely flogged. On our last visit ashore, Mr. Christian was more than usually silent. 
Jan, you are going to sail. Is that not so? Yes, darling. When? Tomorrow. Sunrise. Oh. Where will you be, Tony, when we sail? Here on the shore, waving my hand. I'll watch for you. Christiane, will you think of Tony sometime in your own land? I will not stay in my own land. I shall come back, Tony. Here, Christiane, these are for you. Black curls. Tony, where did you get these? I swim very deep one morning off coral reef. Our people say pearls make men never forget. Your people say right to honey. I shall wait, Christiane. I shall wait for you to come back. And every noon I shall watch for your ship. Michaela has Paoli, Christiane. <laughs> Michaela has Paoli. I'm sorry, sir. I didn't realize... There's no definite time for our return, Captain Blythe. Wait a minute. Sure, you'll be back by four bills. What you got there, Mr. Christian? Some gifts, sir, from our friends on shore. Mr. Samuel? Yes, Captain. You will take charge of these Indian curiosities, which may be useful for trading in other islands. Yes, sir. Now, one moment, sir. These things were given me as gifts for members of my family in England. Mr. Samuel, who heard my orders. Your bundle, Mr. Christian. Captain's orders. Very well, then. Take it. Mr. Christian, you still have something in your hand. Go let me see what it is. Well, a pair of pearls. They appear to be remarkably fine stones. Yes, sir. Give them to Mr. Samuel, please. Black pearls are highly prized in the friendly islands where we shall do some trading. Surely, sir, you won't take these. They were given to me by... by a very close friend. Hand them over to Mr. Samuel! Captain Bly... I've obeyed every order you've given me, and some of them with the utmost distaste. But this I refuse. I intend to keep this gift, sir, as long as I live. Very well, Mr. Christian. I accept your refusal, and I shall remember it. On the 4th of April, 1788, the bounty with her cargo of breadfruit trees set sail from Tahiti. All went quietly enough until the evening of April 14th. That morning, we left the island of Namuka in the friendly archipelago, where we did our usual trading with the natives. A great many coconuts had been brought aboard and piled up on the quarterdeck between the guns under the captain's eye. At about noon, some of the coconuts were found to be missing. Mr. Morrison. Aye, sir. Are all the officers assembled on deck? Aye, sir. Gentlemen, attention. I regret to inform you that several coconuts have been stolen. I expect you to help me find the culprits. Well, speak up. Speak up! Some of you must know the guilty party. Mr. Christian, step forward, please. I wish to know the exact number of coconuts you purchased for your own use, Mr. Christian. I really don't know, sir. Oh, you don't? I hope you don't think me so mean as to steal yours. Yes, I do think so. 
You must have stolen some of mine. You'd be able to give a better account of your own. You may be officers, but you're rascals and thieves. The lot of you! I'll break the spirit of every man of you. You'll wish you'd never seen me before we reach the Indus. Mr. Samuel! Yes, sir. You'll stop the officers' grog and refer their orders. And instead of a pound of yams per man, you'll issue half a pound to all the messes. Understand? Yes, sir. And by heaven, I'll reduce you to a quarter of a pound if I find anything else missing. Make you crawl on your bellies for that. It was feverish hot below deck that night, and there was an uneasy stirring in the forecastle. I couldn't sleep and went up on deck. It was then about one o'clock, and with the exception of the watch, there was no one on deck but Tinkler, curled up asleep under one of the guns. Mr. Norton, the watch, was standing at the rail on the opposite side of the deck. I could make out his form standing in the starlight. Someone appeared at the after ladderway. Who's that? Oh, it's you, Byam. Oh, Hello, Mr. Christian. Have you seen Captain Blydenite? Did you know that he invited me to sup with him? Why? Can you tell me that after spitting at me, wiping his feet on me, sent Samuel to ask me to his table? He didn't go? After what happened, I should say not. Maybe he's got a conscience, Christian. His invitation might have been a way of letting you know he was sorry. I might have believed that once, but not now. By him, we're in his power, officers and men alike. He considers us so many dogs to be kicked or fondled as he pleases. There can be no relief, none, not till we reach England. Heaven knows when that'll be. Heaven knows if I can stand it till then. Heaven knows if the men can stand it. Pam. Yes, Christian? Something I wish you could do for me. On a voyage like this, one never knows what may happen. If for any reason I should fail to reach home, I'd like you to see my people in Cumberland. That'd be too much trouble for you. Not at all, Mr. Christian. Just before I joined the ship, my father, as I make such an arrangement with someone on board, in case anything should happen, he said that it'd be a comfort to him to talk with one of my friends. Oh, you can count on me, sir. Good. That's settled, then. Well, Mr. Christian. You're up late. Yes, sir. You, Mr. Byrne. Can't you sleep? It's very warm below, sir. I'd noticed it. A true sailor can sleep in an oven if the case requires, or on a cake of ice. Good night, Mr. Byam. Good night, Mr. Christian. Wake up. It's three bells. Heard it. Where's the other lad? Thompson's gone to the arms chest. Come with me and be quick about it. Aye, that and I will. Coleman. Oh, Coleman. Huh? What do you want, Thompson? The key to the gun locker. Hurry, man. It's hanging above the hatch. Thompson. Is that you? I broke it. What did you get, man? Ten muskets and a breeze of pistols. Pass them around, mate. Smith? Aye, I'll take one. Quinto? Aye, give me one with a bayonet. Ellison. Thanks. Churchill? Aye. I'm with you. What's the rest of the lads, Bukit? On the app deck. They seen Mr. Christian. Aye. We need Christian, we do. He's the man that'll rid us of that swine. Aye. Christian. Mr. Brian! Mr. Brian, get up! Yes? Yes? Put on your clothes! Look out, 
I'm about it. Oh, what is it? Have we been attacked? Have we been attacked? No. We've taken a ship. Captain Bryan's a prisoner. What? Parker, are you mad? Have you any idea what you're doing? We know what we're doing. Bryan's done all this on himself. Now, by heaven, we'll make him suffer. I'm going to shoot the dog. Don't you try any of your young gentlemen's ideas on us or we'll murder some more of you. He's a bumper. That ought to be possible. Hold your tongue. Mind the gun locker. Come, gentlemen, hurry in these clothes. Oh, Freedom. Yes, Parker. Stand fast by that door there. No one's to come forward without my orders, you understand? Come on, boys. 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 I'm master of this ship now, Mr. Bly, and by heaven, I'll stand no more of your views. Turn your traitor! I see you hung! I'll have you frozen! Hold your tongue, are you dead? Does it enter, dog throat? Let him have it. Quiet! Quiet, a lot of you! I'll give the orders on this ship. Take it, get the other officers on deck. They're fetching him up, sir. Christian. It's Christian. Think what you do. Release me. Lay aside your arms. Let's be friends again, Mr. Christian. Mr. Christian, I give you my word that nothing more should be said of this matter. Your word is of no value, Captain Bly. What do you mean to do with me? Shoot you, you swine! Seize him up at the gratings, Mr. Christian. Give us a chance at him with the land! We'll give you justice, Mr. Bly. Which is more than you've ever given us. What's your plan, Mr. Christian? I have a right to know. Aye, that we have. Mind what you're about, Thompson. I'm master of this ship. You're a mutinous swine! That's what you are, Christian! Then I will listen to you, there. Maybe that'll teach you to hold your tongue. Stand back, I am. Think what you're doing, Christian. This is my affair. Up the steps, right here. Right, Patel. I'm on that side of the deck with Fireman Morrison. Mr. Christian, are you in this? Yes, Mr. Fry. I've taken the ship. None of you will be hurt unless you resist. What are you going to do with Captain Bly? That's what the villain's going to do. Oh, kill Mr. Me. Bly, no, no, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to put you adrift in the longboat. Longboat? Turn him adrift! Turn him adrift! Turn me loose in that rotten little boat, will you? Three thousand miles from land? What else is that but murder? Giving you a chance, Mr. Bly. More than you'd give me. Mr. Mills. Hi, Mr. Christian. Clear the launch and be lively. Hi, Aye, aye, sir. Ellison, quickly, give me a hand with the damage. Now, gentlemen, have your choice. The rest of the men who haven't joined us. You stay on ship with me, or you go with Bly. I give you warning. Come with me and I'll see you hung. I'm with you, Mr. Christian. Stand on the side. I'm going with the captain. Off me. Over here, then. Friar. Mr. Christian, listen to reason. I have no time, Mr. Friar. Answer my question. I have sympathy for you, the wrongs you've suffered. But none whatever for what you're doing now. I have not asked for your sympathy, Mr. Friar. Mr. Byam, what's your decision? Mr. Byam. I shall go with Captain Bly. Very well, over, over here, then. Left side. Purcell? No matter what I think of Mr. Bly, I know my duty as an officer. Mr. Purcell, I shall remember that. All that are going. Mr. Bly, ready to man the launch? He's ready to lower, sir. In the boat, men. First, Mr. Bly. I'll never leave my ship of my free will. Very well. Carry him, men. Yes, and along with you. Stand back. Stand back, gentlemen. Circuit. Keep your musket ready if anyone makes a move. That's it. Into the boat, man. Keep him in, right? Now, the rest of you, Fry Apicel, Nelson, all of you that are going, keep moving. Ellison's up in the supply. In you get. We can't take any more. Christian, we can't take any more. Don't change it anymore. She's overloaded, Christian. She's overloaded with swamp. 
No more men. Don't talk to those men. I'll see that justice is done you. Very well. Back the rest of you by and get back. Yes, Mr. Curtis. Lower away, men. Aye, sir. Lower away. One more chance, Christian. One more chance to surrender. Too late for that now, Mr. Bly. You'll pay for this, every one of you. You'll pay. Give us some cutlasses at least, Christian. The match. Allison, go down some cutlasses. Aye, sir. Oh, you can't so much. Are these all the arms you'll give us? You'll get a belly full of lead. Now, I'm going to turn around the swivel on it. Give him a whip of grape. I will certainly will. Whip that gun, Quibble. I'll put you in iron. Cast off there below. You scoundrels! Murderers! Traitors! I'll have vengeance on you. I'll see you swing in a yard arm before two years have passed. If I have to go to the edge of the earth to get you... The launch was soon a hundred yards from the ship, with Bly and eighteen men crowded aboard. There was no chance of my joining them. A nor'east breeze freshened and the bounty began to gather away. Under Christian's command, we put back to Tahiti. There we parted. It was his intention to turn his back forever on civilization and settle in some remote island in the South Seas. The rest of us well determined to return to England. With him aboard the bounty went eight members of the crew, eight native women, and Tahani, his wife. The last I saw of the bounty, she was standing off the shore of Tahiti with all sails set heading north into uncharted waters where the light easterly breeze had been. Prisoners, passport, Roger Byam. Here, sir. James Morrison. Here, sir. William Muspratt. Here, sir. Thomas Burkitt. Here, sir. John Mills. Here, sir. Thomas Ellison. Yes, sir. Do any of the accused have anything further to say in your defense? No, my lord. 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 Having heard the evidence produced in support of the charges made against you, having maturely and deliberately weighed the whole of the evidence, this court is of the opinion that the charges have been proved against you. It does therefore judge that you shall suffer death by being hanged by the neck on board any of His Majesty's ships of war not later than one month from this date and at such a time and such a place as the commissioners for executing the office of Lord High Admiral of Great Britain and Ireland shall, in writing, under their hands, direct. Our story tonight is the true account of an adventure at sea. It is not fiction. It is history. And history seldom accommodates us with a happy ending. The boundaries of fact reach farther than the boundaries of romance. And even when the last of the principles of any action have died, 
it cannot surely be said that any human event has ended in the sense that a story ends. If our hero tonight was Captain Bly, then our story concludes with the fulfillment of his promise. For Captain Bly, sailing without charts or instruments, against thirst and hunger, against heat and cold, after 41 perilous days on the open sea, brought the launch of the bounty with its crew of 19 souls into the Dutch port of Timur, 3,618 miles from where they had been set adrift. He kept his word, returned to England, brought seven of the mutineers to trial and saw them convicted to treason and condemned to death. If our hero was Roger Byam, then the story still has a happy ending. For in spite of Captain Bly, and quite in keeping with the best traditions of melodrama, he was reprieved from hanging at the eleventh hour and lived to marry a girl and to become a captain in the British Navy. As to Mr. Christian, the end of his story has not been written. It has been told that with his wife Tahani and a few of the mutineers, he sailed the bounty far off the trade lanes to an island they called Pitcairn. They may not have lived happily ever after. But for almost 150 years, their descendants have continued in existence, free from the bondage and misery against which Fletcher Christian rebelled. In a moment or so, Orson Welles will return to the microphone with his guest of the evening, Mrs. Dorothy Hall, a person who has had direct contact with the descendants of the mutineers and who has been recently and dramatically associated with life on Pitcairn Island. While we are waiting for them, let me remind you of something I was talking about a little while ago, of the lavish emphasis on chicken in Campbell's Chicken Soup. Actually, all the good meat of fine government-certified chickens goes into the making. The broth bubbles slowly and softly in shining kettles until it takes on a golden glint, and the flavor of chicken is rich in every drop. Pieces of chicken meat, cooked deliciously tender, go into the soup, too, along with snowy rice. Every woman knows that the merit of a chicken soup depends on the amount of chicken used in making it. And since that is so, then as surely as you like chicken, you'll like Campbell's chicken soup. You'll like it for lunch, for supper, for family meals, whenever the idea of chicken sounds good. Why not put Campbell's chicken soup on tomorrow's shopping list? And have it this very weekend. And now, Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, the last or at least the latest chapter in the strange story of the mutiny on the bounty we're going to tell you tonight before this broadcast is over. It was written only last summer and only a few miles from this studio. <laughs> Hack is a taxicab. It is also what you call a writer if you're mad at him. Quack is what Donald Duck says and what you should never call a doctor. Ham is the most distinguished reference you can make to an amateur radio operator. But there are two kinds of hams and smile when you call a radio actor a ham. Say ham to Mrs. Dorothy Hall, however, and she'll just smile. I'd like to make this quite clear before I go on. 
When you say radio ham to me, it is either dramatic criticism or fighting words, depending on how big you are. But okay around Mrs. Hall, because ham is just a pleasant reminder in the queer vernacular of her own people that she has passed tests A and B of the Federal Communications Commission and belongs to the elect among amateur radio operators of the world. Mrs. Hall's kind of ham pioneered radio. Mrs. Hall's kind of ham stays up late and gets up early. Eats irregularly, rescues flood victims, and talks like an E. Phillips Oppenheim spy into an H.G. Wells machine, thinking nothing of such phrases as QRM, QC, QRT, and QSL, the exact meaning of which I am not entirely certain. 88, however, means love and kisses. This I have committed to memory in several languages. 88. Y15KG is what Mrs. Hall assures me she calls His Royal Highness Crown Prince Faisal Gothel of Iraq. I said Crown Prince Faisal Gothel of Iraq. And there are a lot of other hams, Mrs. Hall's kind. I mean, there is W5DEW, for example, who is married, the dewdrop of Texas, and the mother of four children. There is Howard Hughes. There is Wilmer Allison, the tennis star. There is Dr. James Hard, the John D. Rockefeller of Mexico who's invested $150,000 in amateur radio. This is the, the son of Herbert Hoover, too, and Andy Sinella, the band leader, and about 85,000 others, including Amos of our own Campbell Soups, Amos and Andy. I don't know what makes a ham. Uh, Mrs. Hall's kind, I mean. But I do know that it's very lucky for an awful lot of people that hams do exist. And 214 of those lucky people are especially lucky and especially grateful to Mrs. Hall. They are the 214 great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren of the crew of the HMS Bounty. Remember the headlines? Pitcairn Islanders face starvation, bounty survivors isolated by typhoid rumor, Queen's woman rallies British to aid survivors, radio amateur acts to save starving inhabitants. Well, that was only last summer, and only last summer it was that the rumors of a dangerous epidemic forced the little island into a tragic quarantine that threatened to erase... All life from Pitcairn. That same Pitcairn, that same paradise that Mr. Christian and the rest of them founded 150 years ago in tonight's story. What happened was this. Stories of a contagious disease on Pitcairn Island spread faster than any disease through the islands, from Panama to Tahiti, from Samoa to New Zealand, and boats, all of them, from the biggest traders to the littlest tramps, kept off. The harbor was closed. Pitcairn Islanders watched them, boats with food and, most vital, with medical supplies, sail past them almost within shouting distance and away into the sky. And so it was that slow death and death by torture faced a community in the very presence of civilization, faced a people whose ancestors had known this torment and this kind of death. And here's how another chapter was written in the Saga of the Bounty. Andrew Young, descendant of midshipman Edward Young, latitude 25 minutes, 4 seconds south, longitude 130 minutes, 6 seconds west, fighting time, fighting the ebbing power of his radio transmitter, found an old friend in the ether whom he knew well and whom he had never seen 7,740 miles away, a colleague in the great good fellowship of radio hands, found and gave the word to Mrs. Dorothy Hall... 18618 Williamson Avenue, Springfield Gardens, Queens, Long Island, New York. And here she is. Mrs. Dorothy Hall, who picked up the message and gave it to the world. I'd like you to meet Mrs. Hall. 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Mrs. Orr, will you please read the entry which you made in your log on July 19th of last year? Certainly, Mr. Wells. Here it is. 4.38 a.m. While in contact with VR-6AY, he requested that I contact the British Council that no ships had stopped for trading since May 25th, and they needed food and medical supplies. Mrs. Hall, when did help finally reach the islanders? Just nine days after I received the message. They must be tremendously grateful for what you've done for them. Well, they're very nice people. I think you're understating the situation, Mrs. Hall. I must tell you that since Mrs. Hall rescued Pitcairn Island, I found out from other sources she's become what amounts to its unofficial consul general, purchasing agent, advisor, and guardian angel. Well, Mr. Wells, that's quite a title. Tell us, Mrs. Hall. What do you think is the outlook for the islanders? I'm afraid not so very encouraging. They are entirely cut off from regular professional medical attention. Whereas they recovered from this epidemic, which incidentally has never been diagnosed, it is more than possible, particularly with the threat of cholera, that someday a ship will pull into the harbor and find no one alive. Mrs. Hall, certainly something should be done about this. The people at Pitcairn Island need a doctor. They need someone to tell them what they've got when they're sick and someone to cure them when they've got it. They need at least the simplest medical supplies. I don't know what can be done, but maybe somebody somewhere who's listening to this will know the answer. Let's hope so. And now, before wishing you good night, Mrs. Hall, and thanking you for visiting us at the Campbell Playhouse, I'd like our listeners to hear what I found in your log when I visited your home the other day. It's your most recent entry regarding the island. It's just a sentence, but I think it's very eloquent. It's from the Chief Magistrate of Pitcairn Island to Mrs. Dorothy Hall. Quote, you do what is for our good. It's okay with me. Signed, Richard Edward Christian. And now, ladies and gentlemen, just before I lose my voice and just before we say goodnight, just a minute of next week's story. A preview is what the movies call it. Music, if you please, Professor Herman. <laughs> When Mr. Fippany took the mules out of the traces to lead them down to the stream to drink, he noticed that his wife continued sitting on the spring seat staring ahead of her and that Addie, now ten years old, remained in the wagon under the canvas. When he came back, they were as before. Uh, Josephine, are you feeling all right? Fine. Don't you like this camping place? As well as any camping place. Well, what about supper? I don't plan to cook any more suppers in this fine, free out-of-doors. Well, how come? Tomorrow, Addie and I is going back to some town to live or die. Some town like Natchez. And leave me? We, too, are going back to that town to live or die. Perhaps Mr. Fippany's poker playing, in spite of his wife's frequent corrosive remarks about it, had given him some helpful training. At any rate... Mr. Fippany leaned down and began pulling at Breek Still's long ears. Breek Still? We don't want to go to town, we do. We're, we're, we're ashamed of the old wagon. Who are we, anyhow? Well, we're the chicken wagon family. It ain't got no home except no necessary place. We can't be chicken wagon people no more. It's, 
It's disgraceful. We're the shame. We're going to town. We're in Brickfield, and hey, we're going to town. And by dogs, we're going to the biggest downtown in the world. We're on our way to New York City. <laughs> Mrs. Tiffany screamed. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, what you've just heard comes about at the beginning of next week's broadcast and the voice you heard telling you the story because he happened to visit the Campbell Playhouse in this studio tonight and because he was nice enough to do this for us was the voice of America's finest actor, Mr. Burgess Meredith, who is the star of next Friday's story, which is a queer story, a funny story, a very, very good story and a very, very human story called the Chicken Wagon Family. Until then, until the Chicken Wagon Family, Burgess Meredith, who is next week's star, my sponsor and I, and all of us on the Campbell Playhouse remain obediently yours. <laughs> of Mutiny on the Bounty, Captain Bly was played by Orson Welles. Roger Byam was played by Carl Frank. Joseph Cotton was Fletcher Christian. Thomas Burkett was played by Ray Collins. Mr. Fryer by Frank Reddick. Morrison by Myron McCormick. Edgar Barrier was Purcell. Richard Wilson was Thompson. William Allen was Samuel. And Memo Holt was Tehani. Don't fail to listen in next Friday night when Orson Welles brings to the Campbell Playhouse... Burgess Meredith, in that lovable, laughable bestseller of a dozen years ago, The Chicken Wagon Family. This is Ernest Chappell saying good night on behalf of the makers of Campbell Soups. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Orson Welles' production of Mutiny on the Bounty from the Campbell Playhouse in the second week of January in 1939. It brings us to the end of this edition of the big broadcast. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you. As friend of friend, I'm sorry it's true. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too. Let's make a date for next Sunday night. I'm here to stay. 
will be my delight To sing again, bring again The things you want me to I love to spend Each Sunday with you On the next Morning Edition, can people manage pain using virtual reality? You know, it doesn't heal a fractured bone or cure cancer, but it changes the way we perceive the pain. Also, an electronic musician emerges from the shadow of his famous father. Making beats in your bedroom when I was young felt like about the most opposite thing I could do to my dad. Listen for all kinds of stories on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Join host Matt McCluskey tomorrow morning from 5 to 9 on WAMU 88.5. 